have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Headlines, breaking news. It's another hurricane. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's an earthquake. Oh, no, it's another riot going on. Oh, the world is falling apart. Every day, another shocking headline makes you wonder, what will tomorrow bring? That's why those who know what's coming are using today to prepare. I'm talking about getting your family some high-quality emergency food from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's leading preparedness company. They've been in business going on 14 years now, and they've served millions of American families. Now, they want to help you. By giving you $50 off their popular four-week emergency food kit, you'll get four weeks of food per person with meals designed to give you more than 2,000 calories a day. Oh, by the way, this food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. So it will be there when you need it. Other food goes bad fast. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit. You'll save 50 cents per 50 cents, no, not 50 cents, $50 per kit if you act now. Now, you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com, or if you're listening to the show on my website, just go to the top left-hand corner, click on prepare. Go to Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Don't wait. Do it today.
All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, oh, Global Enlightenment Radio, and iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart Radio, or oh, half a dozen other places. I don't even know where we are anymore. Just go to our show, put the dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie. Or I should say the radio chickadee, so I don't get sued. <laughs> and my co-host, uh, Sleepyhead, Curtis C.S. Yeah. Bennett. Hey, Curtis. It's, it's, well, it's been a long night. I was up till about three. <laughs> I'm on, as you know, I'm here in Philadelphia. So I can't wait to get back to Florida. It's cold up here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's kind of nice right here in South Carolina. We had a bit of a cold snap, but it's warming back up. So hopefully winter won't be too long. We got ourselves an exciting show and a lot to do and a lot to talk about. So we got to dive straight into this, Curtis, uh, because the dedication is rather long. Um, We have a lot of great guests. Uh, The cartoonist Antonio Branco, or you know him as A.F. Branco, Wesley Huff. Uh, we also have Stephen Williford. Do you know him as the um, at the Texas church shooting back in 2017? He was the good guy with a gun. Uh, Mark Tapscott from Epic Times and Faith Hill Faith uh, is with us. And from the Heritage, we have Sarah Parshall Perry. So we've got a lot to do and a lot to talk about. Uh, for those who listen to the show, know that we dedicate a show to each and every show to a hero. Uh, we've done it for Thanksgiving heroes. We've done it for heroes from Revolutionary War all the way through to as much as this year. Uh, but today, this coming week, next week, Tuesday, will be the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So today's dedication is going to go out to the heroes of Pearl Harbor and its history because too many people do not remember what happened at Pearl Harbor. And so many people today don't even remember 9-11. This was the first major attack on our nation in our history. And this dedication, as I pull up everything, here we go. Jojo is among the few in on the secret of one of history's most ambitious schemes for conquest. Besides Pearl Harbor... Under attack will be the Philippines, Malaya, Hong Kong, Guam, and Wake Island, to be followed by an invasion of Southeast Asia. That is the real goal. But the U.S. Pacific Fleet blocks the way. In November 1941, the Pearl Harbor Strike Force prepares to rendezvous in Tankan Bay. The attack is set for December 7th, a Sunday, a day of rest when the American fleet will be at anchor, says Admiral Yamamoto. You will advance into Hawaiian waters, attack the main force of the United States fleet, and deal it a mortal blow. Meanwhile, in Washington, Japanese envoy Caruso arrives on a mission of peace. You all know how difficult my mission is, but I'll do all I can to make it a successful one for the sake of two countries, Japan and the United States. Magic is the code name for one of the greatest military secrets in American history. Combined Army and Navy operations have broken Japan's top diplomatic code. 
Messages from Tokyo to the Japanese embassy in Washington are being intercepted and translated. On November 20th, the Navy translates a message to Nomura and Kurusu, giving them but five more days to reach a settlement for the United States. On November 20th, when Nomura and Kurusu visit the State Department, knowledge of their instructions precedes them. They come to demand oil and the end of aid to China. Tojo will not allow any concession, claiming America will not risk war. Negotiations reach an impasse. Unknown to the envoys, the Japanese strike force is about to be sent on its way. Tonkan Bay in the North Pacific, November 26th, 6 a.m. The strike force turns southeast and begins to make its way towards Pearl Harbor. Only a miracle in Washington can call it back. At Pearl Harbor, naval intelligence tracking ship movements loses the Japanese fleet. November 26, Washington. A decoded message from Tokyo is prepared for the State Department. Urgent to both you ambassadors. There must be an agreement by November 29th. This time we mean it. The deadline absolutely cannot be changed. After that, things are automatically going to happen. For Hull and Undersecretary Sumner Wells, the crisis deepens. But there will be no appeasement. On the same day, the Japanese envoys are presented with Hull's restatement of America's position. The embargo on oil will be lifted when Japan evacuates both China and Indochina. The United States will wait for an answer. Nomura and Kurusu know Tojo will never concede. So does the United States. November 27th, Pearl Harbor is sent a war warning. Hostilities may ensue. Hawaii is ordered to take defensive measures and is alerted against sabotage. So that they may be easily guarded, planes on airfields are bunched together. But Japanese movements toward Southeast Asia, perhaps to Singapore or even to Borneo, seem to indicate the attack will not come here. December 1st, Tokyo. The Japanese Imperial Council approves Tojo's decision to begin the war with the West. The date is confirmed, December 7th. The Pearl Harbor Strike Force, midway between Japan and Hawaii, December 2nd, 5.30 p.m. From Admiral Yamamoto comes the message, climb Mount Nitaka. It means proceed with the attack. Washington, December 6th. President Roosevelt sends a personal plea for peace to Emperor Hirohito. Meanwhile, the Navy is secretly decoding the belated reply to Hull's last proposal. Addressed to the envoys, who are warned not to break off negotiations, the reply rejects all compromise. Cordell Hull is summoned to the White House by the President for an emergency conference. Says Roosevelt, this means war. Long into the night of December 6th, the White House lights burn. The Japanese are bound to attack. But when and where? At Pearl Harbor, Saturday, December 6th, is the welcome beginning of a normal peacetime Liberty weekend. Everything points to an attack on Southeast Asia, not Hawaii. 
And for now, all dark shadows are banished by the siren song of the islands. For some, Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week. For others, at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, into the early hours of the morning, it's a Lindy Hop. December 7th, 4 a.m., 320 miles north of Pearl Harbor. Aboard the carrier Akagi, the radio is tuned in to Honolulu. Nothing seems amiss. At full speed, the carriers race southward to the plane's launching point. It is 5.30 a.m. They are 285 miles north of Oahu. They are approaching the launching point. The time has come. All of the ships carry Shinto shrines at which pilots pray for the success of their mission. On deck, the planes are ready. These last moments give proof to the correctness of Yamamoto's plan. They have traveled 3,500 miles undetected. The rest is up to the pilots. Their prime targets, the backbone of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, the eight battleships moored in Pearl Harbor. planes will take part in the attack. Says Admiral Yamamoto, the moment has arrived. The rise or fall of our empire is at stake. Ahead, Pearl Harbor. It is 6 a.m., December 7th, the day of infamy. December 7th, 7 a.m. The Japanese are 137 miles north of Hawaii. 7.02. On the northern tip of Oahu, a radar station is turned on by an army trainee practicing on his own time. 7.06. A large blip appears on his screen. Something must be wrong with the equipment, he feels. But finally, he reports a large number of planes coming in from the north. He is told to disregard them. They must be our own. He continues to watch. At 7.15, the planes are 92 miles away. 7.30, 47 miles. 7.39, 22. December 7th in the United States. Sunday, like any other. Before it is through, the lives of most Americans will be changed forever. The British are bombing Berlin. The Luftwaffe burning Britain. The White Cliffs of Dover is the jukebox favorite. But more popular are green eyes and blue champagne. The war is thousands of miles away. 
At the polo grounds in New York, a crowd of 55,000 are watching the Dodgers defeat the Giants. The temperature is 37 degrees. The Midwest is blanketed with snow. Milk is nine cents a quart. Bread, nine cents a loaf. At the AMP, coffee is two pounds for 37 cents. A porterhouse steak, 29 cents a pound. These prices, like many old familiar things, will soon disappear. It's a warm, sunny day in California. The temperature of 78 degrees. It is 10.10 in the morning, 7.40 Pearl Harbor time. The island of Oahu sleeps peacefully. A few fishing boats may be seen, but no offshore patrols of any kind. It is an ordinary Sabbath morn. On the battleships moored in harbor, the men are just waking. On the airfields, the planes remain neatly grouped together under the brightening sky. To prevent a counterattack, the airfields are hit first. The planes parked closely together make an excellent target. At 7.57, the main target lies below. Battleship Row. Japanese torpedoes specially designed for shallow water will now prove their worth. after the initial shock of attack, the Navy begins to strike back. Japanese, the loss of a few planes is insignificant. The attack is proceeding even better than planned. In 15 minutes, Hawaiian air power is virtually wiped out. Now, the final assault on the Pacific fleet.
9.45, it's over. The Japanese flee, almost unscathed. The path of conquest opened before them. The spine of the Pacific fleet is broken. Sunk, the battleships Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia, California. Damaged, the Maryland, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Tennessee. Lost, the lives of 2,400 American servicemen. Responsibility for the Japanese success will be inconclusively placed at many doors. Washington, the commanders at Pearl Harbor, the American people themselves. But on December 7th, one thing is certain. Although the success of their attack far exceeds their expectations, the Japanese have made a fatal blunder. For out of the smoke and ashes, out of the shame of defeat, will rise a divided people become whole, brought at once together by the events of this single day. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. divided America becomes united by a common purpose. Clouds of confusion and dissension have disappeared. In their place, resolution, unanimity, and a promise shared to win the war. As always, war means the separation from loved ones and an uncertain future. The Japanese believe the United States will settle for a negotiated peace. But they fail to understand they are dealing with a changed America they themselves have shocked into action. 
It will be almost four long years before the ultimate victory is won. It will not come easily. But for the men at the fighting front, and for those they left behind, the bitter memory of Pearl Harbor and December 7th cannot and will not be erased. Arizona still lies in the harbor with a monument over it. And every day, bubbles of oil the size of a marble come up. And the legend goes, when the last bubble of oil rises to the surface, the last veteran of Pearl Harbor would have passed away. Men and women that spent everything it's not the first time our nation has been divided and then united for a common cause. So we dedicate this show to the men and women who survived Pearl Harbor. Also to the very men and women that defended this nation throughout World War II and through all the wars of this nation from its birth through today and into our future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herodin, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest hour because my name is America. I stand for. Show.com. We're back. You're here listening to Sussex Sense live on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iHeart, iTunes, Facebook. Oh, good Lord. I have no idea half the places I'm on. Just go to the name <laughs> of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern com, And we've got exciting guests lined up today. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie, <laughs> along with my co-host, Curtis, the magnificent C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we've got our first victim in on the line today. Are we ready Good. for a little rock and roll here? Let's yeah, welcome I'm, aboard. I am ready. A little political cartoonist that you see all over the place. I can't tell you how many different places he's been on, also interviewed on Fox News, and oh, oh, Lord knows where else he's been, probably at Newsmax, where I see half my guests show their faces. Welcome aboard, first time, Tony Branco. Good afternoon, Paisano. One Italian to another. Uh, hi, how are you? Yeah. As my grandmother would used to say, Anuch, you be a nicer to that good Italian boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know how I, that goes. I hate to say this. I am part. I am partially. I, I have Italian in me, but I'm also predominantly Portuguese, and that's where the name comes from. So, just to let you know, just a full disclosure. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we'll forgive you. It's nearby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Besides, Portugal uh, so, is a beautiful country. Having been there, oh man, it, it is a lovely country there. Anyway, oh, um, yeah. you you became a political cartoonist. But you did it in a really unusual way. That wasn't your primary calling. And by the way, I want to thank you for your service for serving in the Army. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I how did you... I... Go ahead, I'm sorry. 
I'm going to say, how did you end up becoming an artist? Because as I understand, uh, you got kicked out of art school, the art classes. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, uh, it wasn't art school. It was an art class in high school. Uh, I took it, and, and they were drawing fruit in a basket and that type of thing. And I, I, it was actually, I was kind of just a little bit just bored with it. And uh, I was more into the cartooning angle of it. And uh, and the teacher realized that, so she said, you know, you're really not uh, learning much here, so um, why don't you why don't you go on and do something else? And she was nice about it, but uh, yeah, I've been drawing since I was little, uh, probably when I should have been doing, you know, math, arithmetic, or uh, you know, English language and that type of thing, spelling. Uh, I, I, I doodled a lot. A lot of my friends like to doodle, and so I just carried that on with me through uh, high school and throughout the army. And then, uh, as uh, and I had a business where I did graphics for T-shirts and, and that type of thing. Uh, as things started to heat up with the Obama administration, I began to become very disillusioned by what they were doing and and upset. So I felt, you know. One thing I could do is I could draw, and about then social media started taking off uh, to a large degree. Uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, so I started doodling these cartoons and putting them up on my Facebook page. And before I knew it, uh, it just the following just grew exponentially, and, and it just became uh, just a lot of a lot of followers, and uh, they 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 came to expect me to to cover the issues through my drawings and I was glad to advise and then the next thing you know people started paying me to do it and um, and that's where I'm at today um, I'm able to, uh, to I, nobody tells me what to draw I just draw what I feel at the moment what's at the, the top of the issues that concern me and um, people willing to post it uh, became syndicated through creators so um, I'm out through a multiple uh, multiple newspapers and websites and various publications now. You know, I, I well, I'm one of those that you know started following you a long time ago because I would pick up the paper and I'd say, well, who's this guy? Who is this guy? And <laughs> I, the more and more I saw, I and mean, you are so inventive in the way you depict things. Now, each artist has a certain style. So the second I see yeah. yours, I know it's you. Everyone has this little thing that you could pick up and say, all right, I automatically know that this is so-and-so or that is so-and-so. Um, yeah. The two that I love the most is are you and the person that draws Mallard Fillmore. <laughs> I mean, I get that to my <laughs> inbox every day between the two yeah. of you. But you have yeah. come up with a lot of creative things. But when you pick your topics, do you, do you draw just one cartoon or you do draw, draw several and then decide which one is the one you want to post? Basically, I decide uh, which issue I'm going to focus on. Um, uh, if, I, if I have an issue that I'm passionate about, generally I'll come up with a cartoon about it. Um, and that's how I, how I go forth. Now, I may do a, uh, quite a few drafts. Um, uh, real quick, uh, you know, sketches until I come up with something I think is going to work and communicate what I'm trying to say. Um, but 
generally I do one cartoon a day, and uh, uh, I have to pick I have to pick my issues widely because sometimes there's three or four different issues every day that are really important to me. So uh, that's what it boils down to. Well, you have your own website called Comically Incorrect, not politically incorrect, Comically Incorrect uh, dot com. And um, right. actually, there was a post on your LinkedIn page uh, the other day. Maybe it was yesterday. But someone was criticizing you for posting the cartoons. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's an opinion piece, but it's done with graphic arts. It's a pin, an opinion mm-hmm. piece. People post sure. opinions all the time. But I mean, yeah. I'm telling you, some of these social sites are getting really out of hand. I mean, I've even gotten warnings from Facebook and YouTube telling me I'm giving yeah. out incorrect information. Heaven forbid you say the word COVID. That automatically gets a flag, and Absolutely. that's one of the topics you have you've been picking on a lot lately. And my mom was watching Anthony Fauci and something that Newsmax had on there. God bless, she's eighty nine years old. Bless her soul. Oh she's a little Italian grandma. <laughs> yeah. I'm stuck. <laughs> and yeah. when she's looking at it, and she hates Fauci. And if Queen Camilla Miller comes on, she goes absolutely nuts. But oh, you know, she said something to me, like something about it's a cash cow. And then the yeah. next thing I know, the next day you made the cartoon. It's like, were you listening to my mother? <laughs> <laughs> I was reading her mom. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait, wait. This, this is too, too freaky because you had a great yeah. one, you know, about the vaccines and the vaccine mandates. And... Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, Germany is having everyone go on lockdown, and right. they're now putting before their Bundang or whatever they want to call it, their, their form of the parliament, um, about having a nationwide vaccine mandate. And you find right. some of these countries are actually having people that are unvaccinated be locked down. You can't go <clears> to the theater. You can't go to the restaurant. Unless you're going for groceries and it's only the bare essentials, you're not allowed out of your house. And now Congress just passed this bill about tracking people that are unvaccinated and vaccinated. This is getting crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think that it's, it just seems to be uh, it falls right in line with what they would want anyway. They're kind of using the COVID. Uh, a lot of these big government uh, aficionados are using the COVID uh, as a way to mandate something that they've always wanted, con- total control over, over everybody's life. So it just it just lends itself to to what they want anyway, and it's and it's really scary because there's no end in sight to this. There will always be diseases, and I think that uh, they've uh, blown it way out of proportion. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't danger. But we've had flus in the past. We've had all types of things where they've never reacted this way. And um, it, it is scary. I don't really know what the answer is uh, other than people need to fight back a little bit harder. I, I think so, because if you actually look at the, the uh, birth, the actual genesis of a COVID virus, it's the common cold, folks. What Absolutely. they did, what the Chinese did was they armed it. But now, 
as the virus goes around, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. It may get right. different variants, but it doesn't mean so. So far, from this new Omni, whatever they want to call it thing, mm-hmm. um, no one's died yet. There's been very mm-hmm. little hospitalization. So hey, it, it, maybe guys, it's dying out. It's time to you know give it a rest. Right? No, no, they 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 they're enjoying it way too much. Uh, they're using the COVID. Uh, they're using this as a way to implement everything they've ever wanted to implement it, and that's total control over everybody's lives. That's what the Democrats have always wanted. And now they they have an excuse. They've been looking for an excuse for years uh, to do this. And, and, and so they, they jump on a virus that you have a 99.08% chance of surviving if you get it. Now, I could understand a little more if you had only a uh, a 80% chance of surviving it. That would be wiping out a lot of people. But that's not that isn't what's happening here. You have a high chance of surviving it if you get it, depending on what age group you're in. And uh, they've just jumped on this like like flies on dead meat, man. They're just uh, they're just going for it. Now. This is something that um, <laughs> that's right. Um, oh, that's I gotta re- let you know. I actually did scour the internet to see if there was any video or audio recordings of your band. Now you're part of oh, Tony no. and the Tigers, and I I was yeah. gonna play one, but I could not find it. So you're lucky. You, oh. You're getting off light. Oh boy! Oh great! Oh, that's, <laughs> I, got, I got it. I got it. Got off easy this time. Yeah, the band is no more. Uh, it, I retired from music, predominantly. Uh, the, the the reason was uh, mainly because of what I'm doing now, political cartooning, and and how much time that takes up. I just didn't have the time to donate or to to uh, put forth for playing music and, and uh, practice and all that goes into that. So uh, that's where I met. But I retired about six years ago from that, and I've been doing this pretty much full time and then some. Well, I, I'm telling you, I'm letting you off easy. <laughs> I've done that to other guests. Yeah, I well, found I, it you're, letting your, you're letting your listeners off easy, too. <laughs> Well, we're also, uh, the video, I have a video playing that's live on Facebook and YouTube, and it'll go up on several other places. Uh, but I have your last five cartoons that you do, and it's playing in a loop along with your, your, your pictures so people can see your work as they're viewing this on Facebook and YouTube until they ban me and take it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How do I know. get to your Facebook? How do I get to your Facebook page? You just go to my, my main webpage, which is the name of the show, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, and there is a uh, menu on top that will take you directly to Facebook and YouTube. So anyone okay. listening that wants to go there, they can go there right now because there are people listening right now live, and I'm watching them post their comments in the chat, oh. as well as the chat room okay. here on Blog Talk Radio. I multitask. I multitask. Okay, but, yeah. Um, well, no subject is, is off limits to you. And one of the things you went no. after was the Kyle Rittenhouse. And there was right. one uh, cartoon that you wrote, you did that 
it, 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 it struck me. I mean, a lot of times you think you laugh at it and you go, ha ha. But this had me sit back and it was just, it just blew me away. This is the one where you have the picture of the, um, the noose with Kyle Rittenhouse behind bars. And oh, you've got yeah. the whole gallows there. And it, it, it was just so magnificently done. And it just hit me like what this poor kid was going through and listening to the chants outside during his trial and how that jury, despite hearing all that, came up with the right. right verdict. And, but you went after the prosecutor on that big time. Yeah, I did. Um, I, it didn't make any sense. Uh, the media is, is, pra- is it, they're full of malpractice lately, in the last few years, actually. And this is just another example. If you watch the video, all the videos, you watch the videos, you cannot come up with a different conclusion other than he was in self-defense. Now, that's not what the mainstream media wants you to think. They're going to try to tailor this somehow. They're going to tell you you can't believe your lion eyes. But the truth is that he it was self-defense. And the thing is, is the conservatives are, are, are real in the sense that when they look at something, they don't care if that person's a liberal. They don't care if that person's a conservative. They don't care if the person's white or black. The video, whether whether Rittenhouse was anything other than what he was, if he was black, if he was a liberal, and he shot somebody coming at him with a gun or a skateboard, we would all say the same thing. We'd say that he was in self-defense because that's real. And it just it's upsetting to see so many people willing to throw the law to the side. Eventually, that's going to bite them in the rear. Eventually, if they go with that type of justice, eventually these people in the media that are on MSNBC and CNN are eventually going to feel that bite of injustice because that's not what they are espousing. No, it's not. And matter of fact, Chris Como was recently laid off or whatever, furloughed, whatever they want to call it. And I guarantee after the beginning of the year, he'll be back on CNN and it would be as if nothing happened. And that's the hypocrisy of the left. Had it been someone from Fox News or One American Network or Newsmax, they would be run out of town and they would be hiding for the rest of their life. But no, that's that's not how it happens on the liberal side. The hypocrisy is amazing. But I I thought it was hysterical. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying that the the more they screw up, the more they move up. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch, uh, whereas a conservative would be fired immediately just on the being accused of something. They're a lot of times fired on on Fox or different shows and um, or, or different uh, uh, channels out there, and, and, and that's just totally unfair. I think that just comes with the territory if you're conservative. Yes, yeah. Now, um, I caught something in uh, the Epic Times, I think it was in the Epic Times, um, recently, and they were saying it's amazing how 40 years ago, Monty Python, as, as, as uh, how, how do you say it? Not irreligious, but ir- irrespective. Um, they were just so hel- <laughs> oh, thank you. That's the word. That's the word I was looking for. I had major brain fart here. 
which I happens a lot. Happens <laughs> With the gray to me hairs all the that time. Well, join the club. <laughs> but you and I are of the era when Monty Python was coming up, and it was absolutely hysterical. We loved it, and you know, even as a conservative, we were able to laugh. But they pointed out that 40 years ago was released The Life of Brian, and they took a clip out of it, and they took the transcript, and what they were saying and what they were doing is exactly what is happening today. The wokeness of today's society, uh, where one of the characters says, well, my name isn't Stan, it's Loretta or whatever. You know, I want to be able to be dressed, and I want to have a baby. It's like, it was exactly as if you were talking to the woke society today. How they got it so right so long ago is amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is. I, I never really looked at it in that perspective before, but uh, that's that is true. But they were be, they were trying to be absurd. They were trying to be funny. But isn't it amazing how sometimes uh, you know the loneliness of of people can come back around if. if Curtis. <laughs> Tony, um, I was just wondering if you ever did any anything, any work that um, kind of like tackled um, political correctness and got some um, pushback by it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've, done, I've done quite a few uh, anti-political uh, uh, correctness cartoons. In fact, uh, uh, the name of my website is comically incorrect and uh, it's kind of an extension of that word political incorrect and um, yeah I have been uh, scared uh, uh, multiple times uh, by being on the edge and kind of falling off a little bit to according to some liberals uh, I've been lambasted in uh, HuffPro Washington Post um, yeah, you name probably MSNBC has scoured me, uh, ABC, CNN. <laughs> They've all had their their turn at me uh, here and there. Different different tar- cartoons that I've that I've done. Well, and you've the got the red is, badge of courage. <laughs> uh, yeah, the thing is, is that whatever they accuse me of is so far removed from what is communicated in the cartoon, especially if it's like rape. Racism or, or or whatever, anti-gay or any of those kind of things. The cartoon might be along those lines of, it, of an issue, but it, it isn't doing what they say it's doing. You know, there's no racism in there. There's no homophobia in there. There's no none of this. It's just it's bringing up the issue and and showing the hypocrisy a lot of times that is in that issue from the left. Uh, coming from the left, so. Well, you know, here I got a little food for you to to work on because I don't know if you caught the um, the little bit of a video clip they have. Queen Camilla Mella was um, with uh, Mayor Pete at the uh, transportation. She was in a bus with people in the bus, and she's tooting the horn and she starts to sing the song, and the wheels go around and round and round, you know, with that cackle. <laughs> Oh, you've got to find that clip, look at it, and you've got to lampoon her and Mayor oh, Pete my. with her. Oh, 
that yeah. I, the second I saw that, I said, you've got to do something about that one. But, <laughs> I'll definitely take a look at it. That's, a, that's an interesting tape. Yeah, this this was just yesterday. You know, so you know this woman cannot do anything correct. She is the biggest failure that has ever oh crossed this earth. But you know, I, I loved it where she was saying, "Well, I got bused to school, blah blah blah." Well, so did I. Yeah. But half the time, I right. had to get my younger brother and sister onto their bus, so I missed mine. So I ended up walking two miles. So she had the pleasure of riding <laughs> the bus to school. But I didn't even had the pleasure yeah. of riding it back home. So Queen Camilla Mellon, yeah, yeah. I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> no, no, I said, you know, she's a prime example of if you put your priority on color as opposed to um, uh, as a, a color and uh, uh, perspective as far as political persuasion. And I think that um, we we have the brightest and best of everybody. And we we have people of color, we have people of, 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 you know, we have Caucasian, we have a lot. But we as conservatives base most of what we do on on who we pick on merit. You know, it's it's not about your color. It's about what can you bring to the table and, and, and what can you accomplish, you know, just because you're a person of color and you dated one of the mayors in San Francisco doesn't qualify you to be vice president. Well, dating is a polite term for what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to be gracious. <laughs> more so trying to be gracious verbally more so than in my cartoons. But, yeah. Well, you know, I love, I love the way you always pick uh, President Biden. I have to bite my tongue when I say that in your cartoons, because there's always a teleprompter there, and there's always an empty cloud. <laughs> and I'm like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, the thought bubble, the the infamous <laughs> thought thought bubble that uh, Biden carries around that's empty, and his teleprompter with the Obama logo planted in it, uh, and that is to signify that uh, he's just an extension of the Obama administration. And a lot of the people that were in the Obama administration are telling him what to do and what to say, because I don't think he has the ability to think, um, think past whatever he he's told to do. He he doesn't think past on his all the policies that are coming forth. I feel like most of the policies that uh, Joe Biden is coming coming across with are coming directly from the old Obama administration. I think that Obama himself was a pretty smart guy, had a lot of charisma, but uh, I think a lot of those people that were with him are now uh, leading uh, Biden. And Biden just pretty much says what's on his teleprompter, and that's he doesn't. I don't think he understands what he's saying on a teleprompter. He's just he's had 59 or almost 50 years of experience reading one, so he knows how to put what some kind of feeling into what he's saying convincingly uh kind of like an old a car salesman that's got his wrap down you know and uh, i think that uh, uh it's it's a sad thing to see uh we have a president like that um uh, i just don't think it's very honest it's an, it's a very honest administration and the blood on his hands that i continue to keep on his two Keep it fresh and keep 
people mindful of what he did in Afghanistan. He literally got 13 uh, of our soldiers killed, along with a lot of other people in Afghanistan, by irresponsible policies there, uh, pulling us out the way he did. And we still have Excuse Americans left behind. No, that's, yes. We're allowed to slip once in a while. But uh, he still left Americans and our other allies in, behind enemy lines without offering any assistance in getting them home. You know, uh, uh, this is the beauty about Americans, not our administration, about real true Americans who are stepping up to the plate. A lot of military, a lot of special ops are going over and doing what they can to help get people out. And this is what Americans do to help fellow Americans. They don't care what religion or color or whatever your background is. You're left behind enemy lines. It is our responsibility to go and get you, and they're doing that. God bless each and every one of you. Absolutely. You said it. Yeah, that's uh, it's just a shame. That's, that was a shame. I, I, just, I know uh, within my heart and soul that if Trump was president, that would never have happened. It would have never happened to leave those people behind like that. Um, uh, and, and that just shows you what, what the left-wing politics is about substance. Uh, uh, it's about uh, policy over substance. It's about their party. They put their party first. They put their politics before America. And uh, that isn't the way I looked at Trump throughout all of his policies through his four years and what, he's, what he accomplished seem to always be geared to the American people and our country, what benefited us. And it's the exact opposite with Biden and how he handles the border, how he handles Afghanistan, the economy. Uh, just go down the list. It's just, it's just despicable what he's done to this country. Oh, yeah. And then can we, can we throw in President Fauci? Yeah. <laughs> President Fauci. Yeah, yeah President Fauci. Uh, that, that's the... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Oh, man. And there's, there's going to be a lot more that's going to come out uh, about Fauci because Gateway Pundit uh, posted something about his using orphans, American orphans, or kids that were taken out of homes that were uh, parents had died or they were drug abusers or they were behind bars and using them to experiment drugs on them. And 85 oh of these kids died. This is in Gateway Pundit. And knowing oh Jim Hoff, he doesn't print anything that is not the truth. And 85 of these kids passed away, actually died at the hands of Anthony Fauci. He's got a lot of blood on his hands, and I think it's going to explode real soon. And I just pray that we get rid of this if thing. It's ever, but, if it's ever allowed to get out there and full boy, I, I don't expect MSNBC or, MS, or CNN to report on this. So it's going to be uh, relegated to the margins probably too much. And uh, uh, I hope it gets out. I really do hope it gets out to the mainstream because just knowing what he did with gain of function, gain of function should have never happened. And he should, we, our tax dollars should have never gone to it. And he's been caught lying time after time after time. And uh, just anybody that can allow a, a, a dog or an animal to have his head stuck in a cage and to be eaten alive by sand fleas is, is a, a despicable human being. And uh, so 
anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that. But uh, <laughs> well, it's just crazy. Tony, people can find you at comicallyincorrect.com. And the article I was, I was quoting about Monty Python 40 years ago was actually in PJ Media by Stephen Green, uh, dated December 1st, mm-hmm. if you want to take a look at it. it was, it's sure. spot on. On. You're welcome back anytime. You know, you got my phone number well, now. You. Give me a call and say, hey, Annie, I got. Oh, plus, I got to tell them when they go onto your website, they can see your other interviews, your comics that you draw, the politically yeah. incorrect, and also your uh, books that you have on sale. One of them that you wrote with a friend of ours, Evan Syed. I love it. Yeah. Evan is a, is a yeah. hoot. Evan is a hoot. Yeah, well, Evan, Tony, he cracks me up. The very, very a very bright comedian. I hope people will look him up because he's just, he just, he cracks me up. Uh, I've never seen such a, a, a funny conservative as funny as he can be. And he's just, um, it's, it's crazy how good he can be, but they can find my <laughs> book, uh, at, uh, they can find my book at Amazon. Keep America laughing at the left. I have a calendar that is featured, uh, at, uh, Patriot Depot. So uh, the new calendar for 22, um, people seem to be gravitating to those. Um, Anyway, yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, it is our pleasure. And like I said, you now have my phone number and you got my email. So just give me a shout. Say, Annie, I got this coming up. I want to come on. You're on. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Annie. Well, you take care. Yeah, you two guys. Bye. You All right. God bless. You. All right. Bye bye. Check out uh, Tony uh, AF Bronco at comicallyincorrect.com. I mean, it's great stuff. Great, great stuff. Got a new victim in the bullpen here. Want to welcome aboard for the first time to the show, Wesley Huff. Good afternoon, Wesley. How are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. You got to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what it is that you're doing to help correct voting systems. Well, I am a business systems developer, and I never really thought very much about that, but it's actually a pretty high level of skill and specialized skills. And uh, I have an MBA degree, and I have a, a Microsoft Certified Solutions Developer degree, and I spent a lot of time in my younger days going to computer conferences and listening to people about how you develop business systems and how you manage requirements and how you negotiate with people and how you get business systems to work. And uh, as as it turns out, that's actually kind of an unusual skill. And so what happened to me was I started working on the Trump campaign, and then when we lost the election, some people asked me to take a look at the Florida voting system and they didn't really know that I – they knew I was a smart guy, but they didn't really know what I was really good at. So the first thing I did was take all of the fraud from Georgia, and I said, well, what can we do as a business system, not as a lawyer or as a politician, but as a business system, to stop all this fraud? Okay, and so I, I came out with what was called a tamper-proof voting system, which is basically an entire overhaul of the Florida voting system. Well, so then everybody said, well, that's not going to go anywhere because it's two major changes. And so, and nobody's going to believe you anyway because everybody's going around talking about how we have such a great voting system. And the truth of the matter is we don't. There's an awful lot of problems with it. 
So I started working with Defend Florida, and we went out and we started trying to figure out what the hell was going on here. And we did that in two ways. First of all, I'm also really, really good with computers. So I was able to get the voter registration system and do stuff with the computers that, quite frankly, most people just don't seem to be able to do in terms of analyzing the data. And then also I worked with uh, Defend Florida to go out and do canvassing. So I'll give you an example of a typical canvas, one of the first ones that I did myself. Okay, so I got a list of nine people that are registered to vote at this house, and I got a satellite picture of the house. It's a standard single-family house uh, on the end of a cul-de-sac. And I go up to the house, and there's a woman working in the garage, and I say, I'm, I'm here trying to figure out what's going on with the, the voting registration system. And I got a list of nine, nine people here, and I just want to find out if these people who are actively registered to vote, they still live here. So I get to talk with her, and she looks at my list, and the first thing she says is, well, this guy at the bottom, he's dead. He's been dead for two years. Okay. Then she says there's three people that actually live in the house right now. That's all good. But then there's three other people that are, are relatives, and they moved to Puerto Rico. So, you know, I didn't press her for the details on that, but, but they moved to Puerto Rico, and that's where they live, and that's where they should be voting, but one of them is voting absentee. And then there's two other people, and she says, well, I have no idea who these guys are, but they're still actively registered to vote out of this house. So we start to get this kind of information, and we also interview the supervisors of elections, and we said, you know, what the hell is going on here? What, why is all this? And so we discovered that one of the big problems that, the, that they have is that the laws are make it very difficult to deregister people. There's all sorts of complicated rules. It's very, very easy to register people, but it's very, very hard to deregister people. And so that's why we have all these other people that were floating around. And uh, another example of something else we did was we would print out the list of everybody that's uh, 105 years old or older. And sure enough, at least most of those people are dead. And you probably do the same thing for anybody that's over 100. Most of those people are dead. And so what you find, which is really interesting, is that we have 67 counties and we have 67 different voting systems. And you can look at some of these metrics, like how many people that they have that are registered to vote that are over 105. You can tell pretty good, pretty readily how good a job they are doing at maintaining the registration database. So then Defend Florida you know, continued onward, okay? And they had, one time they had more than 100 people in the field knocking on doors, and they're finding, you know, you go up and you ask someone, well, did you vote in the last election? They say, no, no, I didn't vote, but, hey, it shows her on the thing that they voted, okay? Or uh, you say, well, how did you vote? Did you vote uh, early or on election day or by vote by mail? So oh, I voted on election day. Well, it shows in the records that they voted by, by mail, okay? And so that's the kind of stuff you're getting. And so then the, the word sort of gets out of what we're doing, and I start to get, uh, I start to get pestered by these guys from out of state, you know, and they're, 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 they're bombarding me with, well, hey, what about this? What about this? So one of the things they sent me was uh, people who are voting out of UPS stores, okay, and FedEx offices and virtual offices. So, so a virtual office is something where you, you go and you uh, rent a secretary and a conference room. 
Okay, so that somebody calls your business, a secretary picks up the phone and says, this is your company, and you have a sort of a front for your office, but you don't have to pay for a whole building. You say you pay 100 bucks per month. Well, people register to vote out of those kind of places. And then they do the same thing with the, the UPS stores. So they, they have essentially a, a mailbox, okay, and that's where they're registered to vote out of it. So, so, so we started looking at those kind of, kind of things. And one, what we're trying to do now is we're trying to put together all this information about uh, all these types of issues, and we're trying to get, get corrective action from it. Now, another really good example is people who live in apartments and don't have apartment numbers. Now, this goes back to the way the laws are written. So once again, there's a lot of problems with people not being deregistered because of the way the laws are written. Well, there's also a really big problem with people who live in apartments, and everyone has an apartment number, but they don't. They don't have an apartment number. But the law says if you have if you have an address of legal residence, you've got to have the apartment number. But in the very next sentence, the law also says, hey, you can still register to vote and vote even if you don't have an apartment number. So the, the laws are, have been de, sort of de, de, deliberately corroded and corrupted to allow this kind of stuff. Okay? So they're, in the top 14 counties, there are like 72,000 people who live in apartments. And, you know, it's apartments, it's trailer parks, stuff like that, who, who don't have a number and everybody else does. And this is a really critical concept because the two things that matter the most – when you, when you vote is, number one, who you are, you're the identity of you as a person, and you're a citizen. And the second thing is where you live, because where you live determines which, which election you're going to be voting in. And if you don't know where you live, how can you be voting? Okay? So if you don't know your apartment number, you don't know where you live, how can you be, vote? how can you be voting? That's, that's the basic concept. All right, so, so then we also decided to take a look at how well – people were following the Postal Service requirements for putting in the addresses. Again, because the address is a big deal, it's an important concept. So the Postal Service has a publication called Publication 28, which describes what, how you put in addresses. Okay? And, of course, there's a, a, a page on what you, how you're supposed to put in apartment numbers. You know, you're supposed to put in something like APT, then a space, and then 100, okay? Or if it's a lot, it's LOT, space and 100, okay? Well, so we started looking at the – they're called secondary unit designators and looking at how everybody's doing across the board. So there's one county called Collier County where they – over 80,000 records, they had 20 mistakes, and everything else is exactly correct. But if you go to a county like Miami-Dade, you're going to find between 50 and 80,000 errors where they don't have the right numbers. And the other thing that's really, really interesting is that there's a guy in uh, Marion County whose name is Wesley Wilcox. And this guy is the supervisor of elections, and he's also the, the chief of the Florida Supervisors of Elections. So I go in and I look at how they're doing with the apartment numbers, the secondary unit designators for his place, and there's no APTs, there's no lots, there's no trailers, there's no buildings, there's none of that stuff. Everything is a unit. So here we have this guy who's the, the supervisor of elections and head of the Florida Supervisor of Elections group, and, and in his county, they can't even get the addresses right. 
Okay, so so that's the kind of stuff that that we're finding. Okay, um, all right. So there's. Let's take a break. And you got any questions for me? <laughs> hey. How, go ahead, Curtis. Curtis no, go no, ahead. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, welcome to the show. Since I didn't get a chance to when you came up, but that is a mouthful. Um, it is. It's, it's just, just. It's absolutely astonishing. It's just astonishing. Yeah. Can't just trust astonishing. anybody. Yeah, you can't trust anybody. What? And. Uh, well, so well, so, you the, know, so the next, go ahead, go ahead. Well, what about the the uh, ID when you go to vote? Is Florida still do? Are they doing that, comparing your actual driver's license or state issues identification to the voter roll, and then looking at the address to make sure they match? Well, you know, it's it's that's a really really interesting question, and the answer comes in several parts. Okay. The first part is about 45% of the ballots are, are, were vote-by-mail ballots in the last election. So how people get identified and how they turn in those ballots is another whole story, and it's not a very good one, okay, because there's plenty of room for fraud. But if you just go down and you vote in person, okay, then you're expected to produce an ID, Okay, but again, the, the the way this stuff happens is they've they've systematically corroded the laws. For example, uh, how many senior citizens do you think are in the state who are people that are more than sixty five or older? I'm I'm guessing maybe twenty percent of the population because we have a lot of people that are seniors. If you're a senior, you don't have to produce an ID to vote. And I don't know why the hell they did that, because I think almost every senior would agree, hey, I'm happy to show my ID to vote, okay? And then another thing that they did that's really fascinating is you can go down there and you can have a New York State condominium association identification, and as long as it's got your picture on it, okay, you can give that to them and say, here I am, here's my New York State condominium association identification okay and they're not allowed to say but now wait a minute that doesn't have a florida address on it they're not allowed to ask you that okay they have to as long as you got your name and your picture on it they have to accept that as a valid form of identification so so they they sort of systematically take each one of the protections we have and gradually corrode them over time and the, the reason why they're doing that is because the special interests want to game the system they want to game the system to their advantage and what happens is you have a lot of people go along with it who shouldn't be going along with it because for some reason they think they can take advantage of it themselves but at the end of the day you know it's not going to work in fact another interesting story that i found out uh, quite a while ago in miami dade county they were they were doing ballot harvesting Okay, and so you know the way it got so bad at the end that that what would happen is some guy would drive up with a, in a, with a pickup truck full of ballots, okay, and then to beat that guy, pretty soon another guy would come along and he would have a trailer truck full of ballots, and so it got so so ridiculous that they actually passed a really good law to outlaw but ballot harvest ballot harvesting, okay? And so Miami-Dade has got one of the best laws in the state to stop ballot harvesting right now because of that, because it got so bad. But you, you, what you can see is that every, the system devolves into something where everybody's just trying to out-cheat each other and not really win by persuading the voters and getting them on their side. 
Man, this is crazy. And, and we're being I know, told that there's, no, there's, that there's no cheating. There was no cheating in the last election. Everything was fair and square. But when you say in one area, one county, there was a discrepancy of 72,000. And some of these elections are only won by just a couple of thousand. So the change in the vote yeah. by 72 is amazing. Yeah, well, those are 72,000 people who live in apartments, and they don't have apartment numbers. Now, the thing is, those, those kind of, there's a couple of issues with that beyond what I said already. One is, if you send a vote-by-mail ballot out to one of these apartment addresses, and there's no apartment on it number, who's going to get the ballot? Okay, cause yeah, it, I mean, gonna maybe, the, maybe the post office. Yeah, maybe the post, guy, post office guy knows who it is, but let's assume that they don't. Okay. Who's going to get the ballot? So the ballot could be stolen. So that's that's a reason why you don't want to do that. But but mostly it's the concept of you you if you, you should have an address to vote, okay? And it should be your exact address and your correct address. And and the fact that they're they're not doing that is showing that they're not doing a professional job in maintaining the system. You know, there's another there's another principle that I tell everybody, and I said, you know, you can you can only write so many laws and rules. To govern how people do things, but if you're if you're running like a business, you need best business practices. You need to do things that are the right way to do it. And and a, and a good example of that would be, okay, so why don't they have computers that tell them which buildings have apartment numbers and what the correct syntax is? So somebody goes into the computer and they type in the address, and up comes a thing that says, hey, these are apartments, and if you're going to put a number in there, it's got to start with APT. And then 100, and that's what the computer tells you to do. And if you try to put in something else, it either suggests the correction for you or it won't let you do it, okay? And those are best business practices. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. All right, so let's, you know, maybe I should tell you. What, 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 go, all right, go ahead. Well, it's funny because a lot of times I'll, I'll print postage off um, labels off the computer from the post office. And if you put in an incorrect address it's going to tell you that so why exactly. Isn't the... <laughs> that's exactly correct that's exactly right because because the postal service has computers that do that and they're operating under best business practices probably the best guys in the world for that kind of stuff are are amazon and fedex and those guys i mean they live and die by addresses you know they're going to have it right okay they've, they're going to get it right um, well so yeah. let me tell you some of the other things about what we're trying to do about all this okay okay so first first of all okay you know all i listened to a little bit of your show at the beginning and you know we've got an awful lot of really bad things going on in the country that are very disheartening and the single most effective thing we can do to stop all this bad stuff is to fix the voting systems because then then we can vote out all these people that are doing all this crazy stuff that's the best way to do it. And if we can fix Florida and then get the other 30 red states to have really good voting systems, we can take control of the federal government again and, and control of the Senate easily. So that's why this, all this stuff is really important. And I would urge people to join their local county Republican Party and get them to push this issue and also to join Defend Florida and help them canvas. But I like the, I like the Republican Party county groups because they're the ones that are running people for election. They're running people first for, um, you know, 
uh, school board members and county commissioners and mayors and stuff like that. And so they have a big stake in making sure that the elections as are good and solid. And so far, the Republican Party has really been ducking this issue. And it's time for them to to man up and and uh, and and get involved and push to get all this fixed. All right. So anyway, we've we've managed to sort of uh, kick open the back door of the state legislature and get some information to them um, about what the changes are that need to be made. And one of the things that I did was I put I went through all the laws and marked them up. So I put together a 59-page document. And the main thing about that is just that it shows that there's a lot of problems with the laws. I mean, you know, I look at this stuff, not, I'm not looking at this like as a lawyer, and I'm not looking at it as a politician who's trying to game the system. I'm looking at it as a business systems developer who wants to have a, a really good business system for the public to use. And so how should that be, how should that be set? So anyway, I go through and I, and I redline all this stuff. And so it's, it's page after page after page of scratch outs and redlines of things that need to be fixed. And some of them are really simple, like just, for example, using this uh, standard uh, universal voter registration form at every place. You know, just everybody should use the same form. I mean, what's hard to understand about that? Everybody should use the same form, okay? So, so, so anyway, I did that. And the other thing I was trying to do there was I was trying to make it so that it's not a major overhaul. I figure all the most of these things are pretty simple and pretty straightforward to do, and the legislature could just do some of them, and they would help a lot. And they, they would, they're hard for the Democrats to attack because they're just common sense. You know, everybody uses the same standard voter registration form. Okay, what's the problem with that? Okay, so so anyway, we've 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 managed to give that to some of the state legislatures and defend Florida has also been talking to uh, people in, in Tallahassee and the governor's office and saying, look, look, we got all this data from all these problems, and here's some stuff you can do to fix it. Okay, so there's, a, so there's actually a lot of proposals up there in Tallahassee right now on what to do to fix that, and we're, somehow we're going to have to get uh, the right people focused on this to get the right legislation passed. Uh, let me give you another a good example of something that we're – very concerned about and it's, it's, we sort of have a top top list of things that we really really want and one of them is to get rid of the digital signatures at the DMV so if you go down to the, to the Department of Motor Vehicles and you register to vote most likely they will have you sign a tablet okay well now if you later request a vote by mail ballot you put a, a, a signature with a pen which is called a wet signature on the outside of your of your envelope that holds your ballot, and then when when your ballot comes into the election headquarters, they compare your signature with the one they have on file. Well, if you if you use your finger to scratch a signature on a tablet down at the DMV, and you use the pen to write it on the outside of the ballot envelope, they're not going to match. Okay, they're just not going to match. So one of the things we want them to do is just don't do that. Just give them a standard form and have them fill out a standard form and, put, and sign it with a wet signature. Okay. And, and, and the other thing is that um, there's also uh, this, the standard voter registration form is one of the few, very few controls on the system. 
mean, there's almost no controls on the system or audits that anything that any normal business would, would never function in the way the voting systems do. Um, you know, it's like if you had a bank and you had a system set up so that any one of the tellers could wire transfer money out of the bank and nobody would even know if they did it, okay, that's a system with no controls on it. So nobody gets to wire money out of the bank unless it has to go through a sophisticated process to make sure it's authorized and approved. And, and, and then at the end of the day, of course, they have audits where they check, they check all the money that came in, they check all the money that got wired out, and, and that's how they make sure that nobody can steal the money out of the bank. Well, we have, we have almost no controls like that. But one of the things that we do have is this standard uniform voter registration form. And when you go into the DMV and sign this tablet, you're not signing that form, okay? And the form has perjury warnings on it. And so uh, one, of the things, uh, another, one of the things we're talking about is trying to start prosecuting people for crimes because we think that the best way to get the Democrats to stop doing what they're doing is not necessarily to pass another law, but just to convince them that if they do it, they could get in trouble, serious trouble. Okay, and so we want to start trying to prosecute people for that. And uh, so, so, for example, in Brevard County, they probably have maybe 300, two to 300 cases based on the Defend Florida data of people that have potentially committed crimes. And then based on the computer analysis and things like UPS stores and stuff like that, we could probably come up with a couple hundred more. So now you're talking to three or four or 500 criminal prosecutions in just one county for violations of election law. And so that's what we want to do next. We want to try to go ahead and see if we can prosecute as many people as we can in order to be a deterrent, to stop the people from doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm actually not interested in sending people to jail unless they're really bad people, okay? But, but if they are bad people, I do want them to go to jail. So another example of the same kind of problem is that what I've heard is that they're going to sort of you know, the Zuckerberg-type guys, they're going to literally parachute people into the state before the election, and they're going to go around doing ballot harvesting, which is illegal, but it's a misdemeanor. And so they're going to parachute these people into the state all over the state or bust them in. They're going to go out and do all this, this ballot harvesting, and they're all going to saddle up and ride on out of the state. And since it's only a misdemeanor crime, they, they can't get them. Okay, they can't prosecute them, so they can't stop them. So they can come in and do all that stuff to us from out of state, without a state money, okay, and screw with our elections, and there's nothing we can do to stop them, okay? So, so that's the kind of stuff that, that, that I'm really, really worried about and really trying to figure out what to do to stop, okay? So anyway, we want, us, we want, we want to put together these criminal cases, we want to give them to the supervisor of elections, and we want to say, hey, what's the story here? And if this is a crime, we want you to refer it to the sheriff. And we want the sheriff to look at the case and say, if it's a crime, we want them to prosecute it. And then if they won't do that, the, the governor did something really spectacular just recently, which is something that, quite frankly, we've been pushing really hard for. He appointed this new special task force that's going to have law enforcement to, to look at election crimes. So there's, there's two people in the state law that are specifically designated to investigate election crimes, and one of those is the county sheriffs, and the other one is the governor. 
So finally what's happened is the governor's putting together this, this task force of people to start looking at some of these crimes. So at least now we have some place we can go to with these crimes and say, hey, look at this. You know, I'll give you another really good example of a crime. Let's say that you own a house and you sell the house, okay? But after you sell the house, you keep voting out of that house. You're still registered to vote. They never take you off the registration things. And maybe you have a, an out-of-state mailing address, and they send your ballot to your out-of-state mailing address. Maybe you're living in New York, and you're still, you're, you're, you're still registered to vote. They're sending you the vote-by-mail ballots, and you're still voting out of that house. Well, that's a pretty simple crime to do something about because you can get the date that the house was sold. I mean, the guy owned the house. He lived there. He sold the house. He doesn't live there anymore. But then after he sold the house, he still voted out of there. So that's a pretty clear crime. They ought to be able to, they ought to, be able to take that and say, hey, we should be able to prosecute that. Okay? And well, there's, a, there's a bunch of them like that. Well, on, on that one example, why aren't we going after them for the felony of using – the U.S. mail to commit fraud. Hey, I, I love it. Anything, anything that we can do like that, I love it. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of, I think there are, uh, in many cases, some mail crimes involved here. Okay, there really are. Um, I, I'll tell you another, another really interesting example. I mean, this kind of stuff just, it's just one thing after another. So, another thing that I got from the out-of-state people, okay, who are pestering me with all this stuff is they give me this list of people, and they say, well, hey, these people, they have the same address, and they have the same last name, and they have the same birth date. And usually they come in pairs. Sometimes they're triplets. But, but those people, we're calling them the twins because they have the same address, the same last name, and the same birth date. Okay? And there's hundreds of these in most counties, and in some cases thousands of them. So the question is, are they really twins or not? Well, I don't think so. Okay. So we've been using a program called Ben Verified to try to look these people up and figure out what, what the hell is going on here. So, so what we've found so far is something like this. So first of all, some of them really are twins. Okay. At least they look that way. But, you know, if they're 30 years old, what are they doing still living with their parents? Okay. Okay. But anyway, some of them are twins. Okay. So then, then we look at some of the people and we find – that the first guy on the list has a lot of information about him. He's got phone numbers. He's got email addresses. Okay? He's got education history, that kind of stuff. But the second guy on the list doesn't have an email address. Okay, so how can you not have an email address and be a real person? So what we think, what we think might be happening there is we think you get these people who are, are supposed to go out and get these voter registration forms. And they get paid by the number that they get. So all they have to do is take a voter registration form and just copy it and change the first name to a different name, and then they can turn it in, and it's another valid registration. And then the third case we found is the case where the guy, um, it, we call them the doppelgangers because it's the same guy voting twice. And so it would be like me if I, if, I, if I registered as Wes Huff and also registered as Bill Huff, okay? Now, if you look at those kind of people on this, using this Ben Verified program, what you find is that they both have the same phone numbers and they both have the same email addresses. And usually Ben Verified will say that Bill Huff is an alias for Wes Huff. Okay? And so that's how you can, that's how you can spot those guys. Okay? So we've got, we've got lists of these people. I think there's at least 5,000 of them like that 
in Miami-Dade County, and there's typically hundreds in some of the other counties. And so I, I want the supervisors of elections to go through these things and find out who the real people are. And the other thing that's really interesting about this is that when you, when you make a request for a vote-by-mail ballot, one of the things that you can do is to put the last four digits of your Social Security number on the request for the vote-by-mail ballot. Okay, Now, what that means is when that request comes into election headquarters, they look up your, your Social Security number, and they see if the last four digits matches. Well, what about these people I'm just talking about? You know, what about the Bill, the Bill Huff and the Wes Huff? Do they have Social Security numbers for both of us? Okay. And what about the fake twin? Is there, is there a Social Security number for that person? Well, and if there is a Social Security person for the fake Bill Huff or the, fake other, the other fake twin, whose is it? Okay. I mean, if there really are fake people or there are duplicate people, whose Social Security number is it? So, so then you get into the, the area where there might be some significant social security fraud where people are putting in fake mm-hmm. numbers. But I don't know that because I, can't, I don't have access to that information. So that's something else we want the supervisors of elections to take a look at. Okay, and then there's, there's one more interesting example, which is this is another thing. That's just, this is the kind of stuff that can make you pull your hair out. So I, so I get this list from this person, and, and they list all the different types of frauds that they're finding in other states. And so one of the frauds is they switch the first and last name. So I'm registered as, you know, uh, John Smith, but I could also be registered as Smith John, okay, because they switch the names, okay? So I decide, okay, I'm going to go to my favorite place, Miami Dade, and I'm going to see how many people have the name switched. <laughs> and there's, there's 18,000 of them, okay? So then I say, well, wait a minute. I, I can't figure this out. I have no idea whether these people are real or not, or what the story is on this guy, because there's a million and a half people in Miami-Dade County. Anytime you have that big a population, you're going to have a lot of stuff where people have the same names, birth dates, and everything. But still, so I say, I say to myself, well, okay, I'll see how many of them have the same birth date. So they have the name switched, but they still have the same birth So I got 430 of those guys, okay? And so now the question is, well, who the hell are these people, and are they really people? And is somebody really doing that? Is somebody really going in and just switching the names and registering people like that? And, of course, I don't know. I don't have, and I don't have any way to find out unless I can go get the help from the supervisors of elections and say, take a look at this, and these people would have the, the first and last name switch and see if there's some sort of fraud going on here that we don't know about and we can't figure out. So, so – Anyway, what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to get the Republican Party groups for each county to pick up these issues, you know, get the information that we have and go to the, get the Republican Party, have them set up a voter integrity committee and have them go and present this stuff to the supervisors of elections and ask them, what's the story here? Can you take a look at this stuff and see if there's any fraud here? And if, and if there's genuine mistakes or missing information that we know of, can you please correct those? And so you can get the system right. And that's the approach we're going to do, and we're going to see what happens when, when, they, when they get all this stuff. What are they going to do about it? And that's, that's really when we're going to find out, you know, where the rubber meets the road, whether, whether people are going to be serious about this. But I really like the idea of the Republican Party doing it because the Republican Party has a major stake in this because it's their people – are running for office, and if if, uh, if if the elections are being stolen from them, their people are going to lose. Okay, 
So they, they should be the ones who should be championing this and pushing hard to get the system to work right because it's their people whose jobs are on the line and at stake. You know, there's, there's so much that you've gone through. And, you know, I am a member of the Republican – matter of fact, I'm a member of the executive committee of my county, GOP, and as well as running a Tea Party. Uh, but we set up an election integrity uh, committee, and uh, the woman that is chariot with her husband went through everything that was going on with the voters. And then they looked at what was happening with the audits in Arizona and what was going down in Georgia and looked at what we were doing. And they were able to turn around and look at the the bills that are waiting to be passed in the state house and Senate, and they tore them apart. And she did a fantastic PowerPoint uh, display on what well, was I, wrong I, with us I, here. I, and and then she took it up to the president of the Senate and uh, whoever is in charge of the House uh, and presented all of this to them. They went there in person, and that got our state GOP involved to go through the whole thing also and help endorse the work that we were doing. So you're right. Well, I, think that, I think that's great. That's great. Uh, but I think you should have her get a hold, get in touch with me so we can work together. You know, we should I've all be already, on this together. I already made a notation for her to contact you. Okay. So and I, if I you can, don't mind. I can, give her, I, I can give her information that will help her with this stuff. I, you know, I can generate a list of people that don't have apartment numbers, and I can generate lists of people that are more than 105 years old and, and all sorts of other things like that. They can and just go to the supervisor of election and say, can you please correct this? Okay, and then, and then fact, if it's a crime, go ahead. Well, here in, in South Carolina, we were able to change the person that's in charge of the board elections. We were able to get rid of the liberal and put one of our people in. So you know, we are doing the work here in South Carolina. So I don't know if you can generate okay. any of these okay. lists for South, South Carolina, though. No, I, no I, I'm sorry. I thought you were in Florida. I was hoping you were in Florida. But nevertheless, still have her contact me because – we can always exchange lessons learned, you know, if you know what I mean. And uh, I, could, I, could, I could teach them or tell them how to do the same kind of stuff I'm doing, but they'd have to have somebody that's technically capable to do it. But it's a really good thing to do. Uh, another thing I want to do is I want to have some standard, uh, what I call computer-generated metrics. For example, how many people are registered to vote each month, okay? That's a really good thing. You plot that on a chart. And you, you have all the counties in front of you, and every one of them, you see how many people are registered to vote. And then all of a sudden, if there's some huge spike somewhere, you say, wait a minute, what the hell is going on with this county? Why are they having all these people registering to vote all of a sudden? And then what you do is you go down there to that place, and you find out who those people are, and you go knock on their doors and find out if they're real people or not, You know, because they're going to have a registration address. And you go down and you find out, that, hey, this guy doesn't live here. And so now all of a sudden you, you're, you're flagged with an issue that you can do something about. And there's some other metrics like that too. One of the, one of the big issues is that they're, they mark people as inactive. So they, 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 so they go through these things where they clean up the voter rolls, but they don't really take the people off. They just mark them as inactive. Well, those people can sit there as inactive, and then next year when it's time to elect, they can all of a sudden become active, and then they can be eligible to get vote-by-mail ballots. And so, so I want people to let's plot a chart here. Let's, well, how many inactive people have you got each month? 
So if all of a sudden there's a big spike one way or the other, that's, that's a red flag. And it, it gives you some, some mechanism to have some, com- some control over what's going on and help you spot some problems. So I, I, want, I want all the Republican Party groups to have the technical ability to do this kind of stuff so that they can have some oversight and watch what's going on and flag issues and flag problems. And I think, they can, I think you can do quite a bit with just a few pretty simple things, okay? But anyway, have your yeah, South well, Carolina person talk to me. I'd love to talk to him anyway and find out what, what yeah, you're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'll have her and her husband give you a call because I've got your phone number here. So I'm putting it aside for her. So I will speak to her and see if I can connect her with you because that is great information between the two uh, to help clean up what's going on here. And one of the other problems we had, what we actually was solved, was the changing the voting machines. Because now it's a two-step approach. You go up to the the electronic machine, you pick out everything you, have, you want, it'll print out a paper ballot, print it out with what your choices are. If they don't match, you immediately go over to the poll worker and say, there's a problem with this machine. This is not my vote. And hey, that's they pretty good. I like that. that. I like that. But, I think that's pretty good. And then if it is your vote, you go to a separate machine that is a scanner and you scan it in, and it is saved. The paper ballot is saved inside the machine. So what they do here in South Carolina, 10% of the precincts in each county is audited to make sure the machine that you voted on and the one you scanned it in match. The votes have to match. That's an outstanding idea. That's really outstanding because what that will do is that will, that will prevent – Machine voting machine fraud. You know, one of the things we're worried about, and we, we, there's an allegation that one of our supervisors of elections from one of the major counties, the allegation is that his son works for ES&S. And then there's other allegations that the, that the guy knows how to go in and change the vote totals. And what he's doing is he's taking the secondary races like the school boards. And what he does is he goes in and he knocks out the low points. For example, let's say you're the, the, the Republican won uh, – 70% of the vote, and the Democrat only got 30% of the vote. Well, what he would do is he would change that from 70-30 to 60-40, okay? And he would make that adjustment for that precinct, and that's very hard to spot. But when you go through and you knock out those, the low points like that, then, then what you find is you, your, your guy that you pick wins the race, okay? And it's very hard to detect, and, and – it's a really, it's really a, a crafty, malevolent strategy, and what you're talking about would pick that up and stop it, because you, you sooner or later you're going to have one of these 10% things that are going to hit one of these guys, and the vote totals aren't going to match. Whatever, whatever the totals were for the quote paper ballots are not going to match what the final machine totals are that are turned in, and then it's a, it's a great way to stop machine fraud. Any kind of, a, any kind of a serious audit where you take a, a percentage, like 20% of the precincts, and you go recount them, re- get the paper ballots and recount them, that will stop the voting machine fraud. And there's, a, there's another reason why that will do that is because frequently if you want to do fraud, okay, you, you, have, you can't put all of your fraudulent votes in one precinct because that will blow out the precinct and everybody will see it. So, you know, all those um, – 
allegations that they have about uh, the machine algorithms, you know, what they would do is go across and change each precinct by a few percentage points. Okay, and that's how that's how they would avoid those big spikes, and that's how they would change the vote totals. But if they have most of the precincts having the vote totals change a little bit, an audit will pick it up, and you won't be able to mm. do that. And it will it will stop the voting machine fraud. It will stop it. Okay. Well, so we did uh, find we did audit. find here. Well, we did find here that there were certain precincts in certain areas. There were two problems. The paper ballot did not match with the person voted in the machine, or the person would not be showing on the list as being registered to vote when they voted in the very last election. So some of the oh people were being removed. So that was another problem that we have to address. So people say, no, I know I'm registered to vote. I voted last year. I vote every year. I'm registered to vote, and they could not find it. Now, I carry with me my voter registration. So if anyone has any questions, it's like, here's my voter's registration, which if, if Florida issues a paper or a, some sort of a document that says that you are registered to vote, carry it with you to the poll to prove you're registered yes, to vote. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, Florida issues a voter identification, a voter information card, okay, and that's one that proves that you're registered to vote, voter information right. card. Right. But, you know, well, we have know, a question. Along this, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. We have a question over in the chat room from Joe Goldner. Uh, Joe, congratulations on starting your show back up again next uh, month. Um, he's asking how many states are still using Dominion machines and what happened to the lawsuit? Well, I think that basically what happened with the machines was that the, the, the Chinese communists and the bad guys, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, decide, and George Soros decided to, to take over the voting machine market. And so what they did was they systematically bought up companies that made voting machines and took them off the market. And then at the same time, they, took, they made two companies. One is uh, Dominion and the other one is ES&S, which are essentially the same companies. And they set those companies up to, to, to provide a, a competitive bid for any place that wants to get a voting machine. And the other thing that they did was the ES&S machines are, are quote, very good machines. I mean, they have lots of features in them and lots of capabilities in them that the people that use them really like, okay? And so the, the people who are honest are pretty happy with the machines because they do a lot of good things, and they have a lot of good features. They're, it's, it's good software, a good piece of equipment, and it's better than anything else out on the market because they bought up everything else, okay? But at the end of the day, you know, we, we believe we believe that – that there are built-in features in the ES&S machines that would allow people with administrative access to change the vote totals. Okay? There's also one of the most pernicious features of the ES&S machines is they have what's called a command and control center. So the way this works is as uh, vote-by-mail ballots come in and uh, early voting comes in, you can route the the, the voting information over to the command and control center, and you can see how every single race is going. Okay, and if it looks like your side is going to lose a particular race, you can pick up the phone and say, you know, call your buddies up and say, I need some more vote by mail ballots here because it looks like we might lose this race. And that's how you can use the system in real t- to do real time management of the, of, the, of the outcome of the election. And the 
this was this is the result of the fact that they they have too long a period of time for the vote by mail ballots and too long of a period of time for early voting. So one of the one of the changes that I proposed was let's sh- shorten the whole thing down to a week, so you can still early vote, but but it, it can't be any more than a week. Okay, you've got to get that, and that will that will make it more difficult for them to to manage the outcome of the elections and order up more votes. But also, we need to get rid of those damn machines because we don't want to have people have the ability to to see in real time the progress of the elections so that they can go out and get more votes if they need them. I mean, that's just is terrible. So next yeah. question. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much that goes on, and there's so many different ways to manipulate. Because here in South Carolina, they changed the, the way we voted because of COVID. But this past election, they brought everything back to the original laws, which left the left screaming, ranting and raving, no, 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 we have to have- and they said, no, no, no. At this point, there's no reason for someone not to go to the poll and vote. And we do have early voting. And um, if, if you're like, you have to fall into certain categories. And they were not enforcing it. And, I mean, I walked in, and they already had checked off on the early voting ballot, handicapped. It's like, I'm not walking with a cane or a walker. How do you know I'm handicapped? Don't I have to prove to you that I am handicapped? They had already checked it off. So there's so many avenues for fraud with mail-in balloting because now you you can face intimidation. This ballot is going to the home. Is there a senior citizen at that house that has a a child living with them that may intimidate them and force them to vote a way they don't want to? Is there another handicapped individual in there that is unable to get to the polls and is a family member or a neighbor going to intimidate them to vote the way they don't want to vote? And all you need is two two people to witness the signature. It doesn't say who it has to be. So it's very easy with these mail-in ballots to be manipulated. And this is something that we are addressing here in South Carolina, trying to figure out how to close all those loopholes. You know, the, well, oh, well, a nursing well, well, home. Don't get me started on nursing homes. Ballot harvesting well, l- and l- nursing l- homes. Yeah. Well, let me just let me just tell you that the Florida law actually has provisions to deal with that. Okay. And they just don't do it, but it's, it was it was well thought out and well set up. And the, the issue is, if you have a nursing home, you send a voting team out there from the supervisors of elections office, and you and it's supposed to be a bipartisan team. So you got a Republican and a Democrat, and they all go out there and they help the people vote. You know, they identify who they are and they help them vote. Okay, and then they they pack up and take the votes back, and so that p- protects the nursing home people from, from being intimidated. Uh, I talked to this one guy who was from Chicago and he had just got so disgusted with the Democrat party that he became a Republican. But he said that as soon as there's an opening in a nursing homes, why the Chicago guys would, would get somebody hired there and they would just go around and get all the ballots and, uh, and, and turn them in. And of course, if someone did happen to fill out a ballot by accident that you didn't like, you can just toss that in the trash, okay? You don't even have to turn it in. So that's a, that's a standard technique, you know. Uh, and, and it's a similar approach that they can use for uh, any place where there's a fairly significant number of people who are registered to vote. They, they go there, and they make sure that the vote by bail mallets have been sent to that address, and they show up and they say, we're here to help you vote. 
And then, then they say, well, don't worry about a stamp. We'll take the ballot in for you. And so then they take the ballots, they go through them, and they throw out the ones they don't like. And, or they pressure the people to vote a certain way for, and with, with whatever technique that, that they, they want to use. And the, the problem with all of this is that there's so much money available on the Democrat side of the House. I mean, what if Zuckerberg decides to cough up $500 million, okay, to help people get out to vote in Florida? How many votes do you think you can, you can buy with $500 million? Okay, it's a lot. It's a lot. And that's the thing that's really, really scary, really, really scary. Well, wasn't there something in the last election that it wasn't Soros? I forget who the other millionaire was. Maybe it was Zuckerberg that said, you know, uh, I'll, I'll pay so many of you to go out and vote, especially if now that you're a felon and you're allowed to vote. So every last one of you, wait, that's buying votes. <laughs> that's illegal. Yeah, yeah well, so, yeah, so yeah, there were two cases. One is that they did uh, a crazy thing where they allowed felons to vote again, provided they had, you know, paid any damages that they owed. Okay, so if they'd stolen some money or something like that, they had to be sure they paid it back. And as soon as they had uh, made restitution, they could vote again. Well, George Soros came in with $100 million and offered to, you know, pay off their debts so they could vote. Okay, and then then at the same time, uh, Zuckerberg uh, coughed up a lot of money for for the election offices. Okay, so um, in in Lake County, which was the, the place that we have some real heartburn with, the the supervisor of elections took a couple hundred thousand bucks from uh, Zuckerberg, and what did he do with it? Well, he bought an ES&S machine. Okay, for two hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so if, if you know if ESNS and Zuckerberg are all on the same side, and Zuckerberg is given supervisor of elections two hundred thousand dollars, and then he's using it to buy an ESNS machine for two hundred thousand dollars, that just doesn't it doesn't smell right. And then the other allegation is, and I don't know the details on this, was that supposedly the, that they they gave two hundred thousand dollars to the Secretary of State, and, and she spent that on something. Okay, so so fortunately, with uh, the a bill called SB ninety, the, the Florida legislature banned anybody from private money from being given to these people to do election stuff. Because I mean, I mean, holy smoke! I mean, if the guy comes up to you and gives you five million dollars to help you run your operation. Well, you know, I mean, what what are you going to do with that money? Okay, you could do you could do all sorts of bad things with it if you're a bad person you know if you happen to be a bad person someone gives you five million dollars there's a lot of bad things you could do with that and on the face of it uh we don't want we don't want people who are you know far left activists trying to to give people that are running our election systems money i mean it's just on the face of it it's just flat out wrong so fortunately they fixed that with the um with this the last bill but I mean, it's still appalling that these guys took the money, and they should have—they shouldn't have done that. They should have sent it back to them and said, "We can't take this. this is, it isn't going to look right, and it's not right." Now, wouldn't that be considered a bribe? Well, uh, I get, technically, I don't think it's illegal. Okay, I mean, you're just trying to help the 
government do its job, you know, and you don't put any strings oh, attached you're, to you're, it. You're, but, but, you're paying the government, yeah, you not do, the individual. Yeah, you're paying the government. That, you're giving the money. To, again, the best, one of the best examples is the Lake County Supervisor of Elections got 200000 bucks and he bought a machine with it. And his argument was, well, you know, I needed the machine, and otherwise the taxpayers would have had to pay for it. But, again, the problem is that the people that are making the machines – you know, could be in bed with the guy that's giving you the money, you know. And so, you know, you're, you know, in a way, uh, Zuckerberg is helping to support ES&S, with whom we think is pretty corrupt. You know, we think that they're, that's what we think. We don't know, but we think that's what they are. That's what they are. So. Well, you know, there's so much more to talk about on this one. But like I said, I will have my friend uh, contact you. Uh, another thing we have been doing here heavily is – helping to train poll workers and poll watchers. They're two different things. You're the individual that brings the people in, shows them how to vote, make sure that the identification matches the name on the rolls, signatures look the same, and then you get them over to the machine. A poll watcher watches everything that's going on to make sure it's done all correctly. And we have been turning over the poll workers, getting more of us in there than of them. And unfortunately, this, is, this is a matter of now at this idea. point... It's us versus them at this point. You know, it, it is a fight for our nation, for the heart and soul of our nation. If we cannot have fair and honest elections, how can we maintain this great country? We have to be able exactly. to be confident in our vote. So if, exactly. if you are out there listening to me and you can do this, and if you're a poll worker, you get paid. A poll watcher, I'm not too sure. Uh, but a poll worker does, and you're the one who's going to be checking to make sure the ID matches the name and the person is actually registered to vote. This is important. It's very, very important. Well, you know, one of the major issues with that point is the fact that everybody, for for as long as we can remember, okay, has always felt that if you have an election polling place, there should be neutral people down there or people, people from different parties watching what's going on. But now, all of a sudden, we have 45% of the ballots coming in with vote-by-mail ballots, and there's nobody that watches that process. There's no poll watchers on that whole process. And that's another huge problem, okay? There needs to be poll watchers on every single part of the the vote-by-mail ballots. You know, what they should do is they should get the ballots that come in and lock them in a room, and then on, uh, on one or two days, they should bring in poll watchers, and they should watch how they process them. That's what they should do to make sure that it's being done right, and they don't do that right now. So, Well, some states do do that, and there was instances where they were told they had to stand 50 feet away. So how do you yeah, see? I remember that. I remember I mean, that. Any way to cheat is possible. And then there was the videos of Georgia of this one woman feeding the same ballot in over and over and over again. Once the ballot yes. is fed into the machine, it should be sealed in a it should be fed into a locked box attached to the machine that no one can then turn around, refeed it, or alter it. And you know, one of the is, one of the best ways to look at this whole thing in terms of a solution is to go to Las Vegas. Okay. And my son used to be a professional poker player and I asked him how much money did he carry around with him at the time. 
He said, well, he carried around $30,000 in cash one time. And he had a, you know, he had a big roll of $100 bills in his right pocket and a big roll of $100 bills in his left pocket. And I had a kiss. He had a money pouch where he had another big roll of $100 bills. But if you go there, there, there are people, they walk around with these handfuls of uh, chips that are each worth 5000 bucks a piece. So they got, you know, they got $50,000 worth, worth of chips in their hand, okay? And those people, they're not worried about their money being stolen. They're not worried about being robbed. And nobody is stealing any of the money from the casinos. You just can't do it because they have security measures that stop all that stuff. So if we got those people, those Vegas people, and we said, come to Florida and, and do, do whatever it takes, in six months we'd have a system with no fraud if we just did what they told us to do because they would look at it as a business system and they would fix it so that there wouldn't be any fraud that would be allowed. So there's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of technical solutions that will solve the problem. The problem is that we have so many people who don't want it fixed. They don't want it fixed. They want the system to be corrupt. They want to be able to game the system for themselves. That's what they want. You know, this is so much work we have to do to bring honesty back to our elections. But ever since our nation was founded, there were always instances of fraud somewhere along the way. At times, not very much. At other times, as we've seen this last election, a lot. And, again, unless we can have fair and honest elections, unless you and I and anyone else can feel confident their, their vote will be counted then what's the point? What's the point? Just keep our hands up. Everybody, everybody should be going down to the Republican Party office and pressing those guys, get off your butts, and go put a stop to this, you know, and get actively involved, okay? And, and I honestly think the Republican Party is the best place at the local levels to do this because all our elections are county level, and that's where the problems are. They're really at the county. Well, the, part of the problems are in the way the laws are written, because the laws are so screwed up. But really, at the county level is where things happen. And we've we got to get people you know, to go to the county level, and we've got to get them to, to poll watch and poll work and hold these people accountable and get them to, to fix the problem. So I would really encourage everybody to do that. Get your Republican Party. Tell them it's their job to go stop this, because it's their candidates. And, and you know, generally, they're the ones you want to vote for. And, and get them to stop the fraud. And, and that's what they got to do. Well, another thing is, is if someone does sign up to be a poll watcher or a poll worker, follow through. Make sure that you get the training. Contact your representative or, or your local GOP and have them help you walk through the system. Because a lot of people who are signing up to be poll workers and poll watchers, but the election board never followed through and never trained them. So, I want to thank you for joining us, Wesley. It has been very interesting, and God bless you for the hard work you do. The website that you've been talking about, defendflorida.org. Have a great day, Wesley. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care, Wes. All right. All right. Wesley Huffs, and check out defendflorida.org and the work they're doing to clean up the elections. I want to welcome back. Our, our bi-monthly victim of the, of the evening. Uh, I want to welcome back Mark Tapscott of Epic Times and Hill Faith. How are you doing, Mark? I am great, Ann. How are you guys? Oh, uh, we're, we're we're nuts as always. What else do you expect from, uh, from Curtis and me? 
Well, there's enough there's enough nuttiness in Washington D.C. going on to go around. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we hear you know, no no vaccine mandate, yes vaccine mandate. No vaccine mandate, yes vaccine mandate. What side of the fence are they sitting on? Because right now the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid have suspended the vaccine mandate enforcement, which makes me happy, which means if I'm on Medicare and my mom's on Medicare, they're not going to force us to get the vaccine. Well, you know, President Reagan always said um, the problem with government is that the left hand often doesn't know what the far left hand is doing. And this is this is a perfect illustration of that because um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid announced that they're not going to enforce the mandate, which of course doesn't mean they're withdrawing it. It's still there, but they're not going to enforce it. But at the same time, last night, the House and the Senate both, um, with Republican support, uh, some Republican support, uh, voted to fund enforcement of the vaccine mandates and it's not just the one from cms there's also the one that covers the uh, federal uh, civilian workforce the one that covers the military and the one that covers all private businesses with 100 or more employees including federal contractors so you know on the one hand the government says we're not going to enforce it on the other hand the government says here's a couple of billion dollars to enforce it what do you do? Uh, is, that, is is this the same bill I was looking at? I, I have it somewhere here, uh, where they want to also track the vaccine uh, people that are vaccine vaccinated and not vaccinated. The database. I I think that is. Yes, I do. The the bill that I'm referring to uh, actually is not a bill. It's the continuing funding resolution that they passed. Oh, okay. To, to keep the government open for another eleven weeks. Oh, that, that's a stopgap bill. Okay, all right. I got you on that one. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, I was, I pulled up the legislation that I think I left in the living room, uh, and I was looking at it because 80 Republicans voted to have this funding for tracking the uh, vaccine and the effects of the vaccine, the uh, the, uh, the VERS, uh, the vaccine right. adverse uh, reaction uh, list, uh, which in some way when they were trying to describe it, and I was listening to one of them, and I'm like, why the heck did you do that? Um, he was explaining is that because it's not going to track the individual, so they won't have your personal data as I understand it. Uh, but that's not what some of the other news sites are saying. What is in that? Do you know what it's in that, Bill? I haven't had a chance to read that particular one, but I do have a great deal of familiarity with databases. And um, often, for example, when um, you want uh, information about a government agency's workforce um, that has to do with their their, uh, employment characteristics, you can't, under the law, the current federal law, uh, have that for particular individuals. So what they do is, and it's, you know, a matter of writing a quick little formula, and the computer spits out, uh, it assigns a number or an identifier for each individual employee. 
And that way you get the information you're looking for, but you don't get the name of the employee, of a particular employee. So it's, it's easy to do that. The problem is, in order to do that and in order to know that you have got credible data, you do have to know <clears throat> the names of the individuals. You just don't publish them. So they're going to have the names. They're going to have the records. And they've already got uh, an incredible amount of data and uh, records on every one of us, especially if you're in Medicare or Medicaid or yeah, are is, receiving Social Security. And this is scary. This is absolutely scary because, you know, as if our government has never had their databases hacked. And, oh, wasn't it at one point they wanted uh, Google to handle the, the cloud database? I mean, talk about idiots on, on parade. Every last one of us is going to have our personal information out there for everyone else to see. It's like, oh, now segregation. You're vaxxed. You're not vaxxed. It doesn't matter if you've got natural immunity. It doesn't matter if you've got underlying reasons why you cannot have the vaccine or you, you have religious objections. No, no, no. It's going to be a segregation of the vax versus the unvax. And we already see this yeah. Australia mm-hmm. and Germany. Yeah, and think about it. We, we, we were hearing six months ago pretty regularly about the possibility of vaccine passports. And I, I kind of had a feeling at the time that was too obvious um, a resort, the kind of authoritarian tactics that uh, most Americans just, you know, congenitally say, no, that's, that's not right. I ain't doing that. But if you have the database of those who have been vaccinated and those who haven't, then you don't have to call it a vaccine passport. You just check the database to see if an individual is there or not or how they are there. And um, that way you don't have to issue a passport, but you know whether or not to admit them to, for example, medical treatment at a VA hospital. It is getting to be very, very scary. But the thing is, is that the COVID uh, variant that is out there now, uh, no one's, no major hospitalizations. Uh, there's no one that has died from it. But all of a sudden, we're going on an even stricter uh, lockdown, and you can't travel. They're talking about even trying to determine if you can travel from state to state if you have not been vaccinated. Now, that is the scariest thing to ever see here in the United States of America. Well, that's, that's, that is the whole idea behind the vaccine passport. And you'll notice um, this week when Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was specifically asked about those kinds of measures, she didn't say, no, we're not going to do that. She simply said, well, everything is on the table, which is another way of saying, hey, you know, we, we may do that. You know, it's funny because, you know, uh, there are lawsuits coming left and right because of these vaccine mandates. Uh, I think somewhere along the way, it's going to explode uh, because everyday Americans that, you know, relish our freedom. And when you say my body, my choice, that's okay if you're pro-choice and you want to abort an innocent child. But if you say my body, my choice, because I don't want my DNA altered uh, I don't want to have the chance of having a heart attack because of inflammation or a stroke because of blood clots from these vaccines. And by the way, we're hearing that uh, it, there's only a certain life to these vaccines. It's 
you have to have continuous shot after shot after shot. My body, my choice doesn't work for me, but it works for thee. Yeah, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, um, said during one of the debates, uh, I believe back in the first or second week of November, that with the Democrats, it's the rules for thee, but not for me. And and that is very much the case with, with the vaccine uh, mandates, because, um, you know, we... <laughs> Everybody is supposed to have an individual right to life, liberty, and property, and that has always been understood to include the uh, autonomy of your body. And that's the very thing the Supreme Court, incorrectly in my view, but that is what the Supreme Court uses the basis of Roe v. Wade. So why isn't it also the basis for um, not penalizing somebody who does not want to have the vaccine. I've had the vaccine. I'm glad I did. I think it's fine. But I don't want any American to be forced to take it if they choose not to. That's just not, that's just not American. No, and not only that, it's a decision between the individual and their doctor, their medical provider. Right. The government has right. no need to know this. You know, when, yeah. when we had I, the AIDS I, I outbreak, to... I'm sorry, I was just going to mention that no, when no, we had ahead. the AIDS outbreak and they were trying to track the patients that were AIDS patients, there was a huge uproar. No, 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 you can't have my information. It's private. I'm supposed to be securing my persons or papers. It was fine for AIDS patients, but it's not fine for people that are objecting to the vaccine and COVID. Yeah, there are... Um, at last count, I believe six uh, major cases in the federal courts now where uh, district, federal district court judges have ruled uh, that the vaccine mandates are unconstitutional or, or that the president lacks the authority to issue them. And I think it's, <clears throat> it's pretty clear that what we're going to see is um, – Probably the Supreme, well, I say probably, uh, one hopes that uh, one of the appeals courts will be designated. In fact, one of them has already been designated to handle all of these cases as they develop. Um, And what that probably means is we are going to have a quicker move to the Supreme Court to take up the issue of the vaccine mandates. And the sooner that happens, the better, because I'm I'm pretty confident the Supreme Court is going to say, no, you can't do this. Well, Nevada just passed a law that will penalize people that are unvaccinated. Not only penalize mm-hmm. people that are the employees of any business that is unvaccinated, uh, a monthly penal penalty of, I think, $254, but they will also be penalized if any members of their household is also unvaccinated, like their spouse or the child over the age of 18. So that's going to, that is the craziest thing I have ever heard, that you actually have to pay a penalty because you are not vaccinated. And that's got to be unconstitutional. Well, well, I can guarantee you, and somebody, if they haven't already filed a challenge to that, they're preparing one. And I, I would be dumbfounded if that kind of law was not struck down. The problem is that it takes time for the legal system to function. And that's, if you look at what the Biden people did 
when the courts told them <clears throat> earlier this year, no, you can't not enforce the remain in Mexico policy that Trump uh, implemented so successfully. And, you know, they just ignored it. There were a couple of opinions where that was being told, when they were being told that. Finally, they grudgingly said, okay, now we're going to uh, resume enforcing that law. But, of course, they're dragging their feet in every way possible. And that's, that's, that's the thing about when you have a mass bureaucracy that is given the authority to enforce the law. They can enforce it to the letter. They can enforce it whenever they feel like it. They can enforce it very strictly. Um, they can drag their feet. And, and that could be exactly what they do with regard to a vaccine mandate once the courts make it clear that the, this is unconstitutional. They can just keep trying to enforce it, keep talking about it, keep up the public pressure on people to get vaccinated um, and until finally they have to stop doing it. But that could take, that could take years. Uh, it's funny because you mentioned uh, Mexico and the article that it was in my hand as I was picking it up as you were talking was the very article from the uh, Epoch Times by Zachary. And this is something where they are finally, you know, coming to an agreement with Mexico, you know, stay there until we process you, until we say it's okay for you to come in, come in legally. Uh, but no, no, no. Biden has his own way. It's King Biden and Queen Camilla Mella in the White House. Uh, they will do whatever it is that they feel they do as if they are royalty and we do not have a republic. The House and the Senate don't exist. The laws don't exist. It is what they say goes. And I don't know why he has not been impeached already. Well, I'll tell you, the reason he hasn't been impeached is because the Democrats have uh, very narrow majorities in both the Senate and the House. But the, the, the lesson from all of this is, to me anyway, one of the most important lessons is if you are going to have a huge – executive bureaucracy, you have got to have a huge legislative oversight effort. And Congress has, has all but given up genuine oversight. When I first came to Washington, D.C. back in 1976, there were, there were committee chairmen in the House, and they were Democrats at the time, that the bureaucrats were petrified to have to uh, – testify in front of them because they knew they couldn't, you know, tell the usual evasive BS that they uh, were accustomed to doing because those chairmen would call them on it. And we've, we've really lost that. We don't have that kind of oversight uh, now. And one of the things that, that I, am, I am hoping when the Republicans retake the majority uh, after next November, one of the first things that they better do if they're serious about this is they better relearn how to do oversight and, and do it in a tough manner because if they don't, the bureaucrats are just going to keep ignoring them. Yeah, and then keep AOC off the oversight committee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that will be a problem. <laughs> 
But, you know, they're going to force the mandates on us, but you've got all these illegals coming over. They're not being tested. They're not being vaccinated or, or anything. We don't know what they're coming over with, and we're finding instances of law enforcement now dying in the line of duty from COVID because of these illegals that are now being shuttled all over the country. You have no idea where they're going until they end up showing up. And the next thing you know, they're on that state's dole. They're getting federal government uh, subsidies. They're getting state subsidies. And the taxpayer is paying for everything, for their education, their medical care, their housing, their food, their clothing. We're paying for it. And, boy, are we paying for it. Yeah. Well, you know, I I would encourage listeners to um, to Google Ken Cuccinelli, the former Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security under Trump, and the um, guarantee clause. You Google those two terms, it'll take you to uh, – uh, an analysis that Ken wrote just a couple of weeks ago that lays out the constitutional justification for a state like Texas uh, or Arizona or New Mexico or California whose borders are being invaded, that regardless of what the federal government does, the, the, the governor of the state has the legal obligation and the authority under the Constitution to take measures to protect the property and the citizens of his or her state. And I have a suspicion that if and when the Republicans retake the majority, uh, we are going to see a much more aggressive application of that, of that understanding. Governor Abbott in Texas is, is going through the motions of doing that, but he hasn't really gotten serious about it yet. Uh, after the Republicans retake the Congress, uh, people like Governor Abbott in Texas will be much more confident about being able to actually do those things without interference from the federal government. Yeah, because here it's – I was just going to mention hey, Curtis, that here in South Carolina, we don't have a vaccine mandate here in South Carolina because Governor McMaster just came up and he said, no, not in this state. And we do have the sheriffs here that are enforcing legal – residents or making sure that they are a legal resident if they come across them in the case of a crime then they will hey ice here come get them go ahead curtis yeah 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 what i want to ask was about these presidential executive orders my understanding is that they exist um, to amplify existing law and they really have no legal you know, standing as far as enforcement. But you have a lot of people here who hear that, you know, Biden has put out this executive order or this mandate and that, you know, they believe that it is law. Only Congress can enact law. And I just don't see um, how it is that people just seem to be so I don't know, unknowing, I don't want to say ignorant, of how our system works. But can you kind of like explain the purpose of executive orders? Because there are some Biden put out that are not amplifying existing law, but instead are being 
being looked upon as law. Yeah. Curtis, you, you are pointing at exactly the heart of the problem. Uh, and the reason I keep talking about things like uh, Congress has got to uh, regain the muscle of its oversight authority. Congress under the Constitution is Article One of the Constitution. It's Article One because the founders intended for Congress to be the most significant of the three branches. Congress, as you uh, put it, makes the law. But the Constitution also designates the president to enforce the law. And, and it's defining, well, what does that exactly mean by enforcing the law? That's where the bureaucrats and the political types um, in the White House can come and say, well, we're, we're defining this as being an extension of the law. Um, and therefore, we're okay, and we can do this. And and you, because it's it's an executive order enforcing the law that Congress passed, uh, you are obligated to obey it, unless you can find a federal judge who says, no, that executive order, you're not actually enforcing the law, you're redefining the law. And that's what they do so often is, under the guise of enforcing law, they redefine law. Um, and But they, they know, you know, hey, it takes time and it takes money and energy to challenge uh, an executive order that is redefining law rather than, than enforcing it. And, hey, you know maybe they can achieve all the things that they want to do before the system does its work and a judge says, no, you have to stop that. That's that's the problem, and that's why we have to have Congress with um, a very aggressive oversight program to make sure the executive branch and the bureaucrats know you know, we are watching what you're doing, and we are not going to let you go too far. And if you do, we will do things like take away your funding. Congress has the authority to fund or defund any program it chooses to do. The question is whether or not the Congress has the guts to do that. That's what we need. We need a Congress with the guts to say, no, you're not going to pay those immigrants who suffered under the Trump administration, as you put it, $450,000, because we're not going to fund that. And if you don't have the funds to do it, you can't do it. Man, can we do that to the NIH? Can we do that to the NIH and get Fauci finally ousted? What's starting to break about him, all right, the story is now coming, of course, with Newsmax and a few others about the dogs, these beagle puppies that were slaughtered oh, yeah. because they wanted to see how this parasite, you know, ate them alive, cut their cords their, their, so they couldn't bark, so they couldn't hear them suffering. But now Jim Holt on Gateway Public, uh, Gateway Pug, oh, you know where it is. <laughs> yeah, um, Gateway Pug. Uh Thank you. Uh, had published an article just the other day about the case of 85 orphan children were killed because the NIH under Fauci 
experimented with certain types of drugs to treat AIDS back in the 80s. They're buried in a mass crypt in upstate New York. But they went into orphanages or they went to where uh, people had the children taken away because they were incarcerated or there were drugs or if they had passed away and these children were orphaned. And if the kids didn't want to take the drugs, they were given a feeding tube and then forced to ingest the drugs. No one's talking about this. That's mass murder. Why is he still a government official being paid more than the president of the United States? And I thought at the age of 65, he's supposed to retire and he's in his 80s and he's still there. Why can't we get rid of him? I, I have to admit, Ann, I have not read that story um, in Gateway Pundit. I've, I've heard vaguely of something like that happening. If, in fact, Gateway Pundit has got all the facts right, um, and, and I read Gateway Pundit, I don't think they get it right all the time, but you have to read them because they're serious about uh, what they do. Um, if that is the case, if that's if that's an accurate story, then you know one would think that Congress would call uh, a, uh, an investigation immediately and find out what really happened and who was responsible, and you know whether it's Fauci or or whoever it is, if somebody could be identified as having being responsible, that's that's something that that you cannot let that go without being punished. Yeah, because he named some of the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer being one of them, uh, GlaxoSmithKline being another. They're not small names. These are big, huge pharmaceutical companies. And yeah. gee, and we're wondering why we're being forced with a Pfizer vaccine. Hmm, maybe they're preparing themselves to have a slush fund for any lawsuit coming their way. You know, you just you <laughs> wonder. Maybe they'll get Congress. Maybe they'll get Congress to uh, make sure that they're not held liable like they did with the vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. We need 57 years before we can release the, how we developed this vaccine. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that's going over exactly. like a lead balloon. Now, the yeah. Queen Camilla Mella, what's going on with her? She's losing her court. Now, the latest one to walk out on her is Simone Simone Sanders, Sanders, who was her spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I, she was supposed to be her spokesperson, but I've never seen her speak for Queen Camilla Mella. <laughs> Maybe that's why she walked out, because she couldn't do her job? Well, <clears throat> traditionally, you you don't hear, you don't see the spokesman for the vice president very much, because, frankly, the vice president is supposed to, you know, stay in the background. Vice presidents, uh, there is a reason why John Nance Garner, who was a representative from the state of Texas during the Roosevelt era, and he became vice president, and after he became vice president, he described the job as, and I'm quoting, not worth a bucket of warm spit (laughs) because you, you you have no authority. So it's not surprised that you don't you don't you just don't see very much of a vice president unless you have a president who has a lot of trust for him as Trump did for Pence for many years. Um, and with Kamala, it's been pretty clear from the beginning that uh, she and Biden weren't the best of friends, and 
she has a long record uh, that that people who have uh, had to deal with her over the years have been very familiar with. She's very difficult to deal with, and especially uh, difficult if you happen to be a member of her, of her staff. So I doubt that anybody in Washington, D.C. is surprised that, that people are beginning to say, okay, that's it. I've put in my year. I now have that on my resume, and I ain't going to put up with her for one more day. <laughs> I can't blame them. But I don't know if you saw the video. Earlier today, we had Antonio Branco, the uh, uh, cartoonist, on, and I gave him, I said, you got to see this video that w- was posted yesterday. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I think Newsmax had it up there. I'm not too sure. Uh, but she's in this bus, and she's with Mayor Pete, and she's behind the wheel of the bus, and the bus has people in it. Yes. And she, you see her beep the horn and start to sing, and the wheels go around and round and round. And the wheels go I mean, round and round. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up, so he's probably going to come up with a cartoon on that one. But, Mark, yeah. it's been a pleasure having you with us always, and we're going to see you in another two weeks. Well, my pleasure, and uh, let's see, another two weeks will be right before Christmas, so I won't say Merry Christmas just yet. Okay. Well, God bless, and thank you for the hard work you do, Mark. Okay, Take you care, too. Mark. Bye-bye. All right. You too, Curtis. All right. All right, Mark Tapp. Tap's got find them at the Epic Times, E-P-O-C-H Times dot uh, com. And let's bring in our final victim of the day. She's with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we have Sarah Parshall Perry. She's a legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage. How are you doing today, uh, Sarah? I'm good, Annie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. Anything for Tom, <laughs> but uh, you have all all these great articles up on the Epic Times, and man, uh, Tom and I were having a little bit of a conversation back and forth on uh, emails, and one of the things that uh, you do is the protection of the the unborn, and you've been following the Roe v. Wade uh, Mississippi case, and we've got also now the abortion law that passed in Texas. You've been following all of this information. You've got a great article out there, Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, an opportunity to correct a grave error. Now, when I was talking to him, I had mentioned that I had a stepson recently passed away, but his daughter had gotten pregnant very young, and my husband and I were senior citizens. We're both you know, on Social Security, and we said, well, we'll take the child. And when she grows older, if she decides that she does want to rear the child, that the child will be here. But instead, he took her for an abortion, and that broke my heart. And people don't understand the toll of not just the woman that has the abortion, but of all the surrounding people around that are affected. Yes. Yeah, it really is an issue that doesn't just affect the individual who's carrying the child, but it affects generations after, and it affects family members who might be perfectly supportive in such a situation and might be able to offer supportive services. And we're actually in a period in our cultural development as a nation which most of the charitable work done in the country, according to Pew Research, is actually done by nonprofits 
that are religious in origin. And that is no less the case when it comes to crisis pregnancy center services. In fact, in the state of Mississippi, which is where this case stems from, it's a case out of Mississippi, this Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case, actually concerns the Mississippi Gestational Age Act. And in 2019 alone, $3 million was actually promoted, it was utilized for services and goods to support women in need who were dealing with unplanned pregnancies. 2,700 crisis pregnancy centers stepped up and they stepped into the gap to help these mothers who were absolutely flabbergasted, who really were considering abortion, but who through these agencies were encouraged to actually carry their child to term. We're, we're really at a point now where life is more capable of being protected than ever, not only because of charitable services, but also because we have things like family and medical leave. We have anti-sex discrimination statutes that prevent pregnancy discrimination. We have the ability to seek services through counseling. We have what are called safe haven laws, and safe haven laws, are actually present in 50 different states, and every one of them allows a mother who carries a child to term to surrender that baby, no questions asked, to a safe destination, a pre-existing surrender site that could be a hospital, it could be a police station, or it could be a firehouse. But in every situation, there are no questions asked and there is no criminal penalty. So really, and the Supreme Court made note of this during oral arguments in Dobbs on Wednesday um, of this past week. They really clarified that this isn't just the curing of a pregnancy to term and then adding on the additional burden or detriment of actually being a parent. Because, in fact, Justice Amy Coney Barrett pointed this out, you're really only talking about the detriment, air quotes, of pregnancy, and that itself is supported by so many community and charitable offerings. And there are so many now protective laws in place that make sure that individuals are not discriminated against because they are pregnant, that they do have the services that they need, that really we can't help but see this as a completely different situation. And it argues ultimately for overturning Roe versus Wade. Well, you know, science, you, you watch Sotomayor, and she makes that idiotic statement, uh, but science has advanced since Roe v. Wade. We now understand the gestation of a baby far better. I mean, she was saying, oh, a dead body, if you touch the foot, the nerve will jump. And what yes. makes it any different than the baby? If that is the case, why is it when they do, and it, it, I'm going to say this wrong, when they have to operate on the child within the womb, why do they administer uh, anesthesia to the infant? It, because right. the child right. they know feels pain. It's a lie. And I'll, I'll tell you something else, Annie. I thought it was interesting. That comment really, I think, took a lot of us um, by surprise because it went directly to sort of the emotional plea, sort of the political rhetoric. It, it wasn't even a legal argument. It was an argument sort of founded on hysteria. But I thought it was interesting that in both situations, 
whether with a brain-dead individual or with an individual who is yet unborn, both are not only human lives, but both are breathing. So this is very, very interesting to me that she used what was essentially sort of a grotesque comparison to identify something she thought would make her argument that you could only be living if you felt pain, when in fact, Annie, there are medical conditions that actually diminish or eliminate the ability to feel pain altogether, autoimmune diseases that turn off the neuroreceptors. No one would argue that those individuals are any less than alive, but it's critically important from the standpoint that we know not only did she make strictly an emotional argument that was designed to shock, but also that her data was patently incorrect. In fact, she cited 23 to 24 weeks as being the time period in which individuals, unborn children, feel pain when in fact modern research and as modern as 2020 indicates that in fact unborn infants can feel pain as early as 12 weeks. So when she's talking about a fringe of doctors that actually believe these infants can feel pain earlier, she's just clearly incorrect. You know, it's even if the person is brain dead, I mean, if the person does feel pain, there's a certain hormone that gets released. And we can test it and say, all right, yes, they're feeling pain, even though the brain is no longer functioning. We have a question from someone in our chat room, Vito Esposito, who has his own uh, blog talk show called Mamma Mia, No Sharia. Uh, He wants to know (laughs) if you see, isn't that great? Um, That is great. he, He wants to know, do you see a he puts in quotes, uh, revolution occurring, should Roe v. Wade be overturned by the Supreme Court, as New Hampshire uh, Senator Sheehan uh, stated? Wow, that is a great question, Vito. A lot of people have asked me sort of what I anticipate will be the outcome if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And I think we have to start with clarifying that there is a misconception that suddenly abortion coast to coast will be illegal, and it won't be. In fact, it will be sent back to the states where, as Justice Antonin Scalia, another great Italian, once said, this was never an issue in which we should have been involved. We should never have gotten involved in the minutia of abortion policymaking. That is better relegated to representative government in the state houses, and I cannot agree more. This is really a Tenth Amendment question. The Constitution is very clear that if it doesn't appear in the Constitution through one of its clauses or one of its overt Bill of Rights additions, that it needs to be sent back to the states. It's something most closely related to the citizenry, and we should debate whether it be philosophically or religiously, and we should elect leaders who represent us in our state houses and our state senates. And we're not given an opportunity to do that. And I will say in 15 states, abortion will automatically be legal. There are laws on the books currently in 15 of the more Democratic-leaning states with more liberal leadership that immediately go into place to make sure that that right to an abortion is protected. And in many cases, it is more extreme than what Roe versus Wade allowed, past the point of viability. So to say that that it would suddenly be illegal is just wrong. So will it elicit a revolution? 
I think it will make us more active voters because we will realize that in our state, we need to be more diligent about protecting unborn life. It will be easier to get an abortion, for example, in California or in New York, but in states like Texas or Mississippi, it will be certainly more difficult, but that's the way the framers intended federalism to work. Well, you mentioned New York, because I'm originally from New York, even though I'm down south. I got here as soon as I could. Uh, But we had worked hard to get that uh, bill passed so that if a woman was a victim of a crime and because of the crime she loses her child, now that that person can be prosecuted for not just the woman's death or injuries, but also for the child's death and injuries. And now that new law that Cuomo passed in, negated everything we did. And when I read the bill, I was shocked because a woman could actually walk into a pharmacy and ask a pharmacist to perform the abortion the way the bill is written. And that that child, even if it's born, can be left there alone to die on its own. And that is so barbaric. That's a great way to describe it, Annie. It truly is barbaric. And you know what's interesting to me is just as Clarence Thomas asked Point blank. He asked the Solicitor General for the United States, Elizabeth Pregolar, and he asked also um, Ms. Reichelman, who was counsel for Jackson Women's Health, the abortion clinic, referencing to them a Supreme Court decision from back in the 90s, actually out of South Carolina, in which there was a liability found for a woman who was pregnant past the point of viability whose unborn child died in the committing of an offense, of a criminal offense. Rightly so, I would, I would add, but he made a point of asking both women, what would we have ruled if this was before viability? And this woman who planned to keep the pregnancy lost a child at 20 weeks. What should we have said? They could not answer the question because you see that the line of viability is so subjective and it's so malleable and it's so inconsequential. It is still a life, whether it's a life at 15 weeks or six weeks or 29 weeks, that honestly he put them to a question they could not answer. You know, it's funny because, you know, if you're a good Christian like President Biden claims to be, you know, the Bible says, I knew you in the womb. No, in other words, yes. he knew that we were alive before anyone else even realized that we were there. Yes. So from the moment yes. of conception, it is a life, and no one gives the right of life and liberty and the ability to pursue happiness to the preborn child. Yes. Don't consider that and Annie, I love, I love that you bring that up. In fact, um, I was just reading today and I was struck. You mentioned that, that verse about being known in your mother's womb. And something else I thought about today was the fact that an unborn child was the first to celebrate the news of Jesus. When Mary and Elizabeth, the cousins, get together yes. and Elizabeth is pregnant with John and Mary is pregnant with Jesus, Elizabeth says that the child within her leapt for joy. And I thought, what a perfect picture of the humanity that we have, even though we're not breathing air without assistance. It's simply a matter of geography, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And uh, my mother's church had a prayer vigil uh, for pro-life, and she was wearing her pro-life shirt. She's 89, God bless her, a little Italian grandma. (laughs) But she was there... (laughs) 
I had her there in the wheelchair because she's paralyzed on one side, unfortunately. And I made a T-shirt for myself. It's a picture of a Madonna-looking woman holding a child, and it says, I'm glad, I thank God my mom chose life. And wow, we look great. at women... We look at women that are victims of rape or incest. That child in the womb is a victim also. So why would you victimize the child a second time? They're not guilty of the crime or whatever happened, but they deserve a chance. And there are commercials now I saw up on the TV where a lot of pro-life groups are bringing these children forward, now adults, saying what would have been if I was not allowed yes. to be born. Yes, it's compelling because you realize that every unborn child has the, has the opportunity not only to live but to do with their life what they see fit. Is this the next president of the United States? Is it the next astronaut? Is it the next teacher that changes a young child's life? The possibilities are endless, and that's why life is to be protected, not only that we know that the simple matter of geography does not change the significance of this small person, but because it will, in, in its own way, for everyone, the course of history as well. Yeah, and there are so many families out there willing to adopt. They have their, no children of their own, or they just have a heart big enough to allow another child in. And that adopted child, you know, is given a whole new chance when they know that they're adopted. They appreciate life so much more. I've spoken to a lot of them and interviewed them on the show. Some of them written wonderful books to say they were glad that their mother chose life despite the fact they were a victim of a crime. Because mom didn't commit the crime. Someone did it to of her. Course. She's not guilty. So why would the child be guilty? Absolutely. But, well, you've got fantastic articles on here, but it looks like the Supreme Court will go in favor of pro-life, it looks like, from what I've been hearing and the questions and the answers coming up. So it's always dangerous to prognosticate. You know, I'm, I'm loath <laughs> to say, oh, this is so good that we know that it's going to come down the right way. But I will say I'm cautiously optimistic, and there seem to be at least a 5-4 conservative majority leaning toward the overturning of Roe versus Wade and upholding the Mississippi law, which would send it back to the states. But I will say Roberts is a wild card in this. It's very clear how the liberal bloc is going to vote. He seemed as an incrementalist to sort of really want the middle ground approach. In other words, a way to uphold Roe versus Wade, while at the same time upholding the Mississippi Gestational Age Act. And it appeared that the other justices were not convinced by this. And of course, as the chief justice, he wants to make sure that he can develop consensus. This is generally how he rules from the bench. But I have yet to see anything that looks like perhaps we wouldn't have five conservatives leaning in favor of that. But um, time will tell. We won't know for certain until June of next year. Wow, that's a long time for us to wait. It seems like it's forever, especially with Biden in office. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you're, you center on civil rights, and one of them you were dealing with was religious liberty. Um, there is a case that is coming through there now, and it was in Cummings versus uh, Premier Rehab Keller. Uh, whether or not, you know, um, they can be uh, victims, alleged victims can be con- uh, 
what do you compensated? That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. For emotional distress. Well, what about the emotional distress on the person that you're forcing to go against their religious beliefs? Is that not also emotional distress? Is that not now emotional distress? It's interesting because this case, I I call this case sort of the dark horse case. This is um, sort of a below-the-radar case that has a great deal of implication for civil rights interpretation in the United States, but not a lot of attention has been paid to it. You know, it's not one of the flashier cases like the, New York Second Amendment handgun law or the Dobbs versus Jackson case or any of the other marquee cases that the Supreme Court's taken up in a very, very big term so far. But this case is going to have implications. And the short version of the story is that Jane Cummings, who is visually impaired, she is legally blind, so has some sight, but not complete sight, and she is also deaf, had gone in to seek rehabilitation services at Premier Rehab for a slip disc in her back. She had some chronic back pain, requested an American Sign Language interpreter, and was denied an interpreter, but was offered other services, uh, lip reading, gestures, note-taking, so that there would be effective communication back and forth. And she denied those services, saying that the American Sign Language interpreter was the only way to receive the services to which she was requesting. And in the end, she ultimately went to a second rehab clinic, a second physical therapy clinic, and found the services to be unsatisfactory. And within a few short weeks after that, she sued Premier Rehab, but sued solely under one claim, and that was emotional distress damages that she was hoping to collect under the Rehabilitation Act and the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. Now, both statutes are silent as to whether or not emotional distress damages can be recovered. And while the Supreme Court in the past does uphold emotional damages awards for other civil rights statutes, like, for example, Title VII, it is because those particular statutes are very clear that emotional damages almost invariably accompany another form of damage, a financial interest, a physical injury in every single case. For example, Title VI as well, which is the prohibition on race discrimination, Title VII, which is prohibition on discrimination in employment. And this individual could not point to any associated damage. Now, the way I was listening to oral arguments, it seems to me that the court is inclined to award damages strictly for emotional distress. But my concern is that this is an outright claim that no business, whether it's a religious business or a secular business, can possibly foresee. And it sets up the possibility, particularly for small religiously owned businesses, that they could be bankrupted strictly by claims of emotional distress. And that's something I think that we find very problematic. Well, Sarah, it is uh, such a pleasure to have you with us today, and I welcome you back anytime. You are so interesting, so fascinating, and we think alike. People can find you at the Heritage Foundation at heritage.org. God bless you. Thank you so much, Annie. Have a great weekend. You too. Enjoy. All right, Sarah Perry that you can find over at heritage.org. Curtis, that is all that we got for today. But I did want to mention sure. one thing, and I, I misplaced it. What did I do with it? I had it right in my hand, my fat little hand. You have a speaking engagement coming up with the 
Okay, Carl. See how bright? Okay, Carl. Okay. Like I said, I had it in my fat little hand, and now it's in the mess of papers here. Okay, Carl uh, Smith. Us, yeah, just tell people where they can find you, where you'll be where you'll be at, if they're down in Winter Haven, Florida. Okay, Winter Haven, Florida is in Polk County. Um, the event is on the 13th. Um, I don't have the address right right on me, but I can um, have Andy put it on our website. But let's see, the following day we will be in Highlands County, a place called Sebring. And then the following day we'll be in Osceola County. I'm not sure what city, but it's a three-day um, tour, book tour, and speaking engagement. Uh, nice. So Good in that area, come out see us. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We will be back next week. I have no idea who I got booked so far, <laughs> but we will be back. Uh, so I'll leave you with my friend Gary Pecorella, another Italian, uh, with his song, Save America. So until then, I say good night and God bless. Good night to all. I'm free for this land I America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her or what matters most to you. That's why I stand for the planet.